We can't tell anybody about the baby yet. I just told Bill. Yeah, and I told Harry. I told many, many people. great besides that you know like you said it, it's been it's been a bit of a busy time we have the summers in full swing at work we have a bunch of interns so it's really great to to spend time with them show them the ropes have them show me the ropes <laughs> in some ways uh <laughs> giving me new roles in, in in the company and such and in terms of mentoring them and whatnot that's been a really good time but uh, i have had time to still get to the movies i've really enjoyed that i watched uh, a lot of the world cup since we last had a podcast, of course, the World Cup came to its conclusion. Yeah, that's true. It's over now. Yeah. Uh, it's sad. It is sad, it, but it, it gave me reassurance to think that the Premier League is back in like three weeks. So That's true. Uh, it, 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 that, with the World Cup, it's just you don't have to wait that long between the end of the World Cup and the start of uh, domestic soccer. So Yeah, which is which is nice. Absolutely, yeah. So that, that's getting me through 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 the hard times of, of you know no, no sports and, and a busy work period. But I, I know for a fact that you've had... An incredible event in your life since the last time we had a podcast, so I have to give you your, like, 30 seconds to talk about it or, or whatever. I don't know if I can sum it up at 30 seconds, but, uh, you know, honestly, I'm surprised that this topic hasn't come up in the podcast uh, in the past. I don't think it has, because it's one of my favorite things to talk about, but uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the band Arcade Fire. Um you know, if you if you don't know them, Canadian rock band, they've won every award uh, imaginable, including Album of the Year, Grammy. Uh, and I'd seen them live once before a couple of years ago, um, but I was at I was at an amphitheater and I had a seat and I was you know pretty far from the stage. And you know they're getting a little bit older and not sure how long they're going to be at the peak of their um, powers. And you know if you know anything about them too, you you probably know that they're like. You know, an, an incredible live band. Like, Rolling Stone named them one of the five best live acts of all time in a list, like, recently. Uh, all time. Um, so I was like, I got, I'm going to do this right. Got a, got a ticket for, I guess it was for my birthday, um, to, to be in the pit. Showed up to the venue here in Northern Virginia. Um, I was, I, I showed up early, like, I bought the fast pass and everything. Like, I was determined, and... I was the fourth person into the into the entire venue, um, so I, you know I was literally standing. I was on the railing, front row. Like you literally could not have been closer to the stage. Um, I've seen and, some. I've seen some of the photos you've posted, so I can confirm yeah, that if uh, you. you wanna, were... If you want to see how close I was, look on my Instagram at Scarby Dent. But uh, you know, it, it, it was like it only it didn't even feel real for a lot of it because like you know I've spent so many hours watching them like play live on videos on youtube and stuff and so standing there like that close to the stage it felt like i was just watching another video 
but I had to, you know, I had to keep telling myself, no, that's actually that. They're right there. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I'm not sure that anything in my life will ever top it, but, um, you know, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be that depressing about it. I mean, also, something could top it. You could go see them in the pit again. I mean. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, like I said, they are getting a little old. So who knows if they'll be able to perform with their, you know, as much gusto as they do. Actually, at the end of the concert, um, Will Butler, who's one of the band members, he's known for, in the song Rebellion Lies, when they play it live, he's known for hitting a bass drum very hard. Like, he has this huge drum, and he just bangs the crap out of it for the entire song and, like, runs all over the place. And he was running down in front of the stage. Like, he went off the stage and was running down right in front of the railing where I was. And all of a sudden, I just see him, like, go to the ground. And I wasn't that freaked out because... I've seen videos of him doing it before, and he, like he'll literally just lay on the ground and just hit, keep hitting the drum. Um, but apparently, like on Instagram today, he posted a photo of like where he sprained his ankle from like tripping over something while he was running around down there. So it's a full contact sport playing an arcade fire. You know, who, you got to do what you got to do to to get what you love. So yeah, I if any of them are listening, thank you um, for listening. You, first off, th- thank you for listening for the first one. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> um, I don't know why you're listening to this, but uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you uh, for for delivering. But uh, but speaking of music, um, our first movie today has a lot of it, and I am talking, of course, about Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Uh, so so let's just get right into it then. Um, why not? Directed directed by Old Parker. Uh, this movie is a follow up to 2008's Mamma Mia, which was, of course, based on the hugely popular. Uh, stage musical of the same name and like its predecessor uh, Mamma Mia Here We Go Again is a jukebox musical set to the songs of the iconic Swedish pop group ABBA who count Dancing Queen, Take a Chance on Me, Super Trooper and of course the title song among their many hits. Now the first movie and uh, of course the musical two are centered on a girl named Sophie and her quest to find out which of her mother's three ex-lovers is her real birth father so that he can walk her down the aisle at her upcoming wedding. In Mamma Mia, here we go again, however, we take a bit of a step back. Now, Amanda Seyfried reprises her role as Sophie, who is now several years older, as she finishes up renovation on the beautiful island home where she was born, all while all while missing her mother, Donna. However, the majority of the movie takes place in flashbacks where we see a young Donna, played by Lily James, as she meets and romances the three men who eventually becomes Sophie's co-fathers, so to speak. Now, in the modern-day timeline, the three men, Bill, Harry, and Sam, are played once again by Stellan Skarsgård, Colin Firth, and Pierce Brosnan. And uh, that's about it. Um, <laughs> saying, that, saying that this movie is spent on plot is perhaps not much of a surprise to anyone who is familiar with Mamma Mia, but the first film and musical still have an undeniable appeal. Now, Scott, I don't know if you've seen the first film or the stage show, uh, but did you surrender like Napoleon at Waterloo to the charms of this follow-up, or did you find that it moved Andante Andante, as one of the film's songs goes? Oh, that's probably the best intro to a movie we've had on this podcast. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, I can't resist. I'm a huge ABBA fan. Yeah, I mean, and how couldn't you be? Like, their music is fantastic, and their yeah. music is the lifeblood of, of these movies, absolutely. Uh, the first, to... to Maybe maybe to start with another joke, if we just wanna if we just wanna zoom out to that, I, I will say one of the funniest tweets that I saw about this movie leading into it was that the sequel to this will be my my Mamma Mia my my and, and just be oh, here we go my my keep going through all the lyrics yeah it'll song. just go through all the lyrics to Mamma Mia as their sequels uh, come through 
But yeah, and since, since we're talking about jokes, I'll just throw in that Leonard Malton, the great film critic. Um, I I heard him say, I'm sure he's probably not the first to say this, uh, but he said that you could uh, review this movie by just saying the title yeah. with a particular cadence. <laughs> Mamma mia, here we go again. Yeah. Uh, was that your reaction or what? Well, you know, that was my certainly my reaction walking into the movie. I remember actually, well, uh, I will show my cards here and say that I walked out of the movie theater an hour ago. Um, but I was walking into the movie three hours ago, and I was, and I was like, wow. You stayed for the whole thing. I did stay for the whole thing. I did, I did make the joke that I'll let you know if I, if I left early. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so I walked into the movie theater, and I was like, God, I really don't want to see this. <laughs> like, I really don't need to see this, probably. It's not going to add anything to my life. And... I, I think that that's probably true. I don't think it added anything to my life. But it was a it was a fun two hours, though. I had a good time with it. Um, I know I was texting you right after uh, right after the movie got out. I told you that I didn't know if this was a hot take or not because I hadn't looked at any of your reviews yet. But I thought this was actually significantly better than the first movie. Uh, maybe it's a hot take to say I didn't love the, the first one. I mean, the music, as we've already talked about, I mean, the music, and I'm sure we'll talk about more. Like, the music is infectious. Uh, it's absolutely... Fantastic! Like the best moments in the movie for me for both movies are when Mamma Mia is sung. It's just like kind of spine tingling to me. That that and um, Dancing Queen, they're just really incredible to hear put together on the screen. You know, and and they are and those parts are definitely well done in my opinion. And I think that if you go into the movie expecting it to be anything more than that, you're probably not going to leave feeling like fully satisfied. But at the same time, on the periphery, on the periphery, the reason why I think this is better is that like, I wasn't like frustrated with anything else in the movie. Like like in the first in the first film, uh, the first Mamma Mia about a decade ago, I think almost exactly a decade ago. I think that the plot was just really confusing. Like some of the characters were just not interesting. And in this movie, I thought the characters, even though mostly the same, were more engaging. They were better done. The new characters were really great. I think that they never dwelled too long on one topic, which is something I think the first movie had a problem with. Um, this one jumped around a lot. And, you know, maybe it was a little too long. Maybe it was about 10, 15 minutes too long for me. But at the same time, I never got frustrated with it. There were some moments that I thought were cringeworthy, which I'm sure we'll talk about it. And then there were some moments that, and I know I texted you about this, there were some moments that I think they're the hardest I laughed in a movie so far this year. There are some really, really funny moments. And I... I know we were talking about this off air, but before we started recording, that like I got pretty much exactly what I expected out of this, and I do think that what I expected um, was a lot of fun listening to the music. You know, that was mainly what I got. I got a few laughs out of it, and I wasn't really disappointed by anything. This this isn't didn't blow me away by any stretch of the imagination, but I was pretty satisfied with it. And I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I honestly just don't have that much more to say about it than that. Yeah, well, I mean. You know, I said last night from our Twitter account that this movie is almost unreviewable, um, and that I say that because, like, from by any conventional standards of what makes a quality movie, I, I think you'd have to say that this falls a little short. Uh, now, I mean, you know, the performances are good, but uh, in terms of, like, you know, having a coherent plot, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what was going on in the last ten minutes of this movie, probably. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I, I think it takes it's a real. I think it takes a real dip at the last the last ten fifteen yeah, minutes. It's but. very confusing about. Well, we'll get into it if we talk spoilers. The fact that there are spoilers for this movie actually kind of cracks me up. But, but yeah, I think you've described what kind of a movie it is perfectly because even though it does like you know you could say it comes up short on those uh, on a lot of the the ways that we conventionally judge a movie, it's also not aiming for that. 
Um, like it's it's literally just aiming to be a feel good movie with good music. And I came out of the movie and the the music was good and I felt good. So I mean, I guess you have to you'd have to say that the movie succeeded, even though there were times when I was just laughing at how ridiculous, um, you know, that what was going on in the movie was like. You know, just to get into it, one moment. So Amanda Seyfried's character finds out that she is pregnant, um, and she finds this out because she throws up one time. She vomits one time. Oh yeah. Um, I and I, I wrote in my letterbox review of, of this movie. The only thing I wrote was apparently if you vomit one time, it means you're pregnant. Yeah. No. When when that scene happened in the movie, and, and okay, this was a pretty full movie theater, so I felt a little bit bad doing this. What, when she like vomited, she was like, "Well, I guess we know what that means." Like her line or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I was like, "It means that you're sick." Like what? Like yeah. <laughs> I said that like verbally. Out. I mean, I knew what they were trying to say, but I was just like, yeah. "That's so dumb." <laughs> it's such a bad line. Yeah, there, it, it was. Uh, it was you know uh, big logical leaps, but you know I am someone who is a huge. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of ABBA. I have seen the first movie a couple times. I've seen the stage musical in the West End, where it is the longest running stage musical. Um, so, you know, I'm, <laughs> which was I'm better? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't. The, I mean, the musical obviously was the music was fantastic, but I mean, the plot wasn't any better. Like, sure. it's still just as ridiculous and still just as silly. But, you know, I honestly think that that's one of the problems in general with adapting Broadway musicals for the screen because, like, why not just go watch the Broadway musical? Like, you're going to have better performers. You're going to have, like, a, a, a more prolonged experience. Like, adapting a Broadway musical just means you're going to shorten, like, uh, the musical, take a lot of the songs out of it, and get Hollywood actors who can't always sing to perform the songs. Like, <laughs> At Pierce Brosnan? Yeah, it seems ridiculous to me, and that's why what I said to you when you came out of the movie was, yes, that this movie is completely unnecessary, but I feel like it's the movie that they should have made the first time instead of making you know making a straight adaptation from the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about the music maybe, but I think that actually for me, you know, they repeat some of the songs, but for me, the, the better moments were some of the songs that we didn't get to hear in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to the music, why don't we talk about some of the some of the performances? Oh, um, and we'll start with Amanda Seyfried, who, you know, was the main character in the original Mamma Mia playing Sophie, and she, you know, she plays the same character here a little bit older, but I don't, I don't think you could really say that she's the main character anymore in this movie. Um, no, regardless... It, it, what did you think of her performance? Yeah. No, I thought Amanda Seyfried is was good. I think that she still has. I mean, she feels like exactly. I mean, and this is like this isn't a complaint, but she feels like exactly the same from the first movie. I don't feel like yeah. any personal growth is taking place. And I mean, I, I really don't think it's like that heavy of a critique to say that. Like, I don't even no, mean that necessarily no. in a. Ne- I mean, it's a, it's definitely a negative in terms of like the movie, but it's like not a negative in terms of my experience. Like, I didn't go into the movie and be like, oh yeah, we're gonna see some great personal growth from Sophie Sheridan. In, in this film, uh, which isn't true, but at the same time, it's something that, that exists. Like, it, it feels like you could literally, like, like, had an intermission at the end of the first movie and just gone straight into the second one, and, like, it probably would have been fine. Probably, like, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, you're just getting to relive some of the songs. But to stay on focus here, I think Amanda Seyfried, I mean, she's done exactly what she's been asked to do. I agree that she doesn't feel like the main character. Lily James is a young version of Donna, who was played by... I mean, the older version is Meryl Streep in this movie yeah. and in the last one, who's now 
um, passed away uh, a year Maybe. ago. I don't know. That was part of my confusing confusion with the ending. Oh, but maybe we'll get to that. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I misunderstood the ending. Then I don't know. Um, anyway, I think that the Lily James really feels like the main character to me, and I think that she does a, actually a, a really extraordinary job. I think. I, I mean, I remember her, she was in the first film too, if I'm not mistaken, right? I'm not Lily James. I don't believe that she was. Oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm completely misremembering the first film. Anyway, I think Lily James to stay focused on this film. I think Lily James does a really good job. Uh, I think that she really nails the uh, the charisma. Yeah, there's no way Lily James was in the first movie. She's like way too young to have been in the first movie. Yeah. Um anyway, yeah. So I think I think that she really nails young Donna. I think she really nails like the interactions, her voice. Is, I mean, if it, assuming it is her voice, she, her voice is pretty good as well. And I really enjoyed the fact that this movie leans heavier into flashbacks. I don't remember exactly how much time was spent in flashbacks in the first one, if at all. But um Maybe I'm just completely misremembering the first movie. Um, but I, I, I think that it serves this movie quite well. And I know in the past I've complained a lot about flashbacks, and I, and I think that you have as well in terms of how some movies have, have flitted back and forth between either different timelines or, or flashbacks and, and the present times. I think this movie is served quite well by it, and that's because you have two pretty charismatic leads, if you want to call them both leads, in uh, Amanda Seyfried and, and Lily James, and I think they both do their jobs well. Yeah, I think that you've described, uh, you know, it, it well that the movie leans heavily into flashbacks, which is a good thing. I think the movie realizes that it's a lot stronger, you know, when we're focusing on Lily James, because like you said, I think she does sort of steal the show here in terms of the cast members. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not to take anything away from Amanda Seyfried, um, because I am actually, I'm a big fan of Amanda Seyfried. Like, I uh, have enjoyed a lot of her movies i think she's a very versatile actress she can do a lot of she's shown that she can do a lot of different uh types of movies uh has a lot of range uh and of course this role doesn't really call for that uh, but what it does call for is for her to be really charming and i think that she does that very well and you can you know you could say the same for lily james like i i, I really enjoyed her performance um and as sort of you know just this very free-spirited character um, you know, it is kind of her interactions with the men are, are, you know, they're a little they're a little silly. They're a little ridiculous. You know, just the fact that these like male models just keep popping up in her life, like all within like a three day time period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously there's there's some far fetchedness there. But, yeah, I think they both have really good singing voices, um, too, which is obviously important because, you know, like I said, we're having Hollywood actors sing and we've seen it. In you know film musicals in the past, that that doesn't always go too well. You know, of course, I'm thinking of Russell Crowe and in Les Mis, but there are there are other examples as well. Um, so you know, I think it's important that they got people who um, who, who can sing really well. Um, and yeah, and I think Lily James and, and Amanda Seyfried both do, and I think you know that for the most part, the rest of the cast um, follows suit. Um, and so let's talk about the rest of the cast then, uh, because you know there is a star-studded cast just outside of um, outside of Amanda Seyfried and Lily James. You mentioned we have Meryl Streep. Um, we have the three men again: Stellan Skarsgård, Colin Firth, um, Pierce Brosnan. We have Andy Garcia, who's playing a new character um, as the sort of the innkeeper um, on the island, and we have uh, Cher as well, who shows up as uh, Amanda Seyfried's. Uh, grandmother Meryl Streep's mother um, 
And then, yeah, we also have three young men. I don't really know any of their names who play the three the three um, suitors in, in the in the flashback timeline. Yeah, Jer- um, Jeremy but, Irvine, Hugh Skinner, and Josh Dillon. Right. Um, so, what did you think of? And also, I, I forget um, uh, Christine Baranski and Julie Walters who play of course. Uh, Meryl Streep's you know two old friends. Um, and they also appear in the flashback timeline as well. What did you think of the rest of the cast and you know the parts that they had to play? Yeah, I, I think that the I want to focus on the people who left the most impact on me. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna leave some people out. I'll, I'll go ahead and give my mention to Cher. She's like I don't know if I love her character in the movie. Um, and in fact, I think it was that, something. It was something. Yeah, maybe not. I have to say, I have to say though about Cher, I love the moment. It, 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 I I legitimately laughed out loud when. She sees Andy Garcia's character for the first time, and they've obviously had some kind of relationship before. Yeah. And Andy Garcia goes, he, Ruby. And she goes, yeah, and she goes, Fernando. And right as you hear the song Fernando starting up in the background, and I was like, oh my gosh, of course. It was like the Across the Universe Beatles movie, how all the, the Beatles musical, how all the characters are named like Jude, Lucy, Prudence, like JoJo. Like, yeah, you know, you know where this is going. Oh, yeah, no, the first time I heard his name, I was like, well, I know where, someone is going to have some sort of (laughs) interaction with them where it leads into the song, uh, Fernando, of course, so, you know, it is is exactly what I expected. Cher, to go back to that point, I think that her character was something, as you say, and I don't know if that something was entirely positive, Uh, maybe we'll circle back around if you want to talk about it more, but no, I, I think that I have to lean heavier on Christine Baranski and Julie Walters, as well as Andy, as, as Andy, and as well as Andy Garcia, because they are uh, really, really great in in this movie. I think they. Well, actually, I'll take this back. I think Christine Baranski and then the young version of Julie Walters, who's played by Alexa Davies, really steal steal the show for me. And I know I know that Christine Baranski, as cringeworthy as a couple of her lines are, including the maybe the worst line of the year so far. No, wait. Let's spoil it. Let's not spoil it. Okay, we won't spoil it. She has okay, this, what has to be the worst line of the year so far. See this movie. Yeah, it, it yeah, is so incentive. That you can hear this line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, and then Alexa Davies, who's playing young ver- the younger version of Rosie, who's played by Julie Walters in the present day timeline, has what is my favorite line of in the movie, and we'll I'll talk about it when we get around to favorite moment. I don't want to spoil it now, but she has a moment in in one of the flashback sequences. Uh, one of her lines is I think is the hardest that I've laughed in the movie theater so far this year, and. Yeah, and so like their characters, their delivery, their their personalities, their characters in this movie do a lot for it. You know, they're they're not. I mean, we're not talking about winning awards here, but but they yes. they definitely complement the aura, the persona, the the flair of, of this movie and what makes it good. And and I think that they amplify that uh, quite quite well. And of of course, you know, there are other characters who are good. I think that Colin Firth does a really good job as Harry. Uh, in particular, if we're talking about of the three of the three dads in the movie, uh, a, a great line from Andy. I mentioned Andy Garcia, and I haven't talked about him yet. I think his Fernando is a spectacular character in this movie. Maybe maybe the best in terms of the supporting roles. I think he has some 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 killer lines that I, I know that you appreciated as well. Um, and, and one of his, of course, be, being when he finds out that these three men, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, Stellan Skarsgård's characters, are the three fathers of, of Sophie, who's played by Amanda Seyfried, he says, of course it takes three men to raise this woman. <laughs> to, raise, to, to raise a woman. And I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> uh, Too good. Yeah. 
I have to say, I, I wasn't, didn't know what to expect from Andy Garcia because this isn't the type of movie that he usually does. Um, but he did show a, a nice light touch with his performance that I appreciated. Um, and I, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Omi Jalili, who plays the uh, yes, the, the, like, the customs ferry operator, yeah. yeah, customs operator, who's like checking their passports. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And he just, like, critiques everyone's physical appearance. And, like, he's telling Lily James, like, he looks at her passport photo and he's like, oh, your hair looks better when it was shorter. Well, it was the funny uh, part about that was that he also told Harry, the younger version of Harry, that his hair looked better shorter. Yeah. And then at the end, age has not done well for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talking to, uh, um, was, uh, was Stellan Skarsgård, I think? It was Stellan Skarsgård, I believe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but so I, I also thought that he... Uh, added a lot you know i have to say like i'm not a huge fan of like the christine baranski and julie walters characters like i think that's where the movie just gets a little too silly for me um in the way that they're just running around throwing themselves at all these men like Mm -hmm. you know christine baranski throws herself at like three different men and then you know julie walters we start out and she's you know she's had a rift with Bill, which is this telling scarsgard character Mm -hmm. but you know it takes about three minutes of them being back together for you know, her to fall into his arms again. So, yeah, uh, that's where the that's where the movie loses a little bit for me. But I mean, you know, that's that's what type of movie this is. At I the mean, same time, like I'd just be more confused if that didn't happen in this movie. So that's what I mean yeah, when I say I think it amplifies like what this movie is trying to do, and that and that can be good or bad. I just think it amplifies it. Yeah. Uh, as for Cher, like I don't know. I feel like they it, it, it was kind of a, a waste a little bit because she isn't really in very much of the movie. Um, I didn't mind it. I didn't, I didn't a, think she was very good. So. Yeah, yeah. She, she she just kind of appears just so everyone can be like, oh, look, it's Cher. And she sings Fernando, and, like, you know, she hangs out till the end of the movie, I think. But, um, yep. yeah, it didn't add a lot to me other than, you know, the fact that it's Cher. And, you know, you, you know to some extent you can see Cher, Cher belongs in a movie like this. I just don't think that they integrated her character well enough um, yeah. of the grandmother. So, um, so my... I, I th- You've mentioned. Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you before we move on here, because um, you talked about owed me Jaleel. Uh, did you stay for the post credit scene? No, no, I didn't realize there was a post credit. There's scene. a post credit scene. So everyone who's listening to the podcast hasn't seen it yet. Stay for the post credit scene because it's very funny. <laughs> where does, um, does he get dusted by uh, by Thanos? <laughs> He's not feeling well. Um, no, he does not get dusted. He he see. So it's implied that he's gay throughout the whole movie. I don't know if you, you like picked up on that at all. Oh, okay, yeah, because because Her- Harry, the Colin Firth character, I, this is something I couldn't remember if they really did touch on in the first movie, but it's definitely in the musical. You find out at the end that he's actually gay now, uh-huh. and there's a little there's a little moment in this movie where Harry said like they compliment each other on their appearances or something, and I, it kind of made me wonder. Oh, like I bet. I wonder if they're trying to play up that he's like gay or something because yeah. Harry, you know, is supposed to be gay. But. So they lean in that in the post credit scene because uh, Omidya Lil sings "Take a Chance on Me" to the younger version of Harry. <laughs> oh my god! Very funny. Yeah, um, but then the other the other performance which I want to like just briefly note is I don't know which of the actors played the young Pierce Brosnan played the young Sam, but I thought that he did kind of an uncanny Pierce Brosnan imitation. Like, Jer- I, Jeremy I, I Irvine. Yeah, I didn't feel like the other two were really trying to imitate their, uh, you know, who they play, who the older actor was. But I thought that uh, he he struck a nice like sort of impersonation of Pierce Brosnan, like he had the Irish accent going and everything. Um, so I thought that that he did a good job as well. Uh, but why don't we talk 
briefly about the music because, you know, that is so important to whether this movie succeeds or not. And, you know, going into this movie, I was, you know, I was kind of like, you know, bothered by the fact that this was even a movie because they used like all of the popular ABBA songs in the first movie. So I'm like, what are they going to do? And, you know, then I heard that, oh, they're going to be reusing some of them. Um, and, you know, that which is kind of annoying in and of itself, although, you know, I think they still do a good job with some of those songs in the movie. But I think what we've learned from this movie is that Ava just has so many great songs. Uh, like, even the ones which you're not as familiar with, like One of Us or When I Kiss the Teacher, which, you know, there's a great scene at the beginning of the movie where Lily James sings that. Um, like, they're still great songs, and they sound like, you know... Like, they sound perfect. Like, they, they sound like they fit perfectly alongside all of these other, you know, classic songs that we know. And I did appreciate, too, that they found some time to work in, like Waterloo and Fernando, which are, you know, some of the bigger songs that weren't in the first movies. Yep. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, the music, again, it, I mean, we haven't really talked about it that much so far, but, I mean, the music is the reason you go to this movie. You don't go for any yeah. other reason except the music. And so... I, I know I don't know if we talked about on the podcast or we used like what exactly what songs, but yeah, I, I think that you know I appreciated working in songs like what exactly what you said Waterloo and you know I had never heard of When I Kissed the Teacher before, but enjoyed that one as well. I thought it was a really great way to start the movie, uh, to, to be honest. And then did they have did they have on Dante on Dante in the in the first movie? No, they did not. Yeah, I mean I, I thought that was I thought I mean that that song was great, but I thought that, that like on like what they did with that on screen was really yeah. cool. I thought I thought that was one of the best like performed songs on the screen, not in terms of how it sounded, but just in how they choreographed it. I thought that was really a uh, really cool way cuz it's just it's just uh Lily James's Donna and I believe it's the young version of 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 Bill, uh, I believe, is it not? No, I think it's the young version of Pierce Brosnan's character. Sam. Okay. Sam. Yeah, I think it's the young version of Sam in the in like the cafe restaurant with yeah. the is, is it's not a mariachi band, but like the really yeah, like yeah. crappy band that can't get hired anywhere on the island. And then her mom, his mom gives who is uh, savage, one of the best characters Lily, in the yeah, movie. Gives Lily James the house. Yeah, uh, that that was that was a I thought that was a really well choreographed song. Just to talk about another song that wasn't in the movie. And and that being said, like I I wasn't annoyed by them reusing songs personally. Like, I get why it's, like, not super creative just to, like, redo the same songs. Yeah. I do think that they tried, with the exception of, like, uh, uh, with, with the exception of Dancing Queen, which I think, I mean, of course it looks a little bit different because it's a different context when they sing it in the movie, but, like, choreographed roughly the same. I, I appreciated that their choreogra- the choreography of, like, Mamma Mia when they performed it was totally different than the first movie. That they did something different with yeah. that one, especially with how it started, because it started off as, like, this really sad song. They made it, they basically... Made it where Lily James's character, who's dealing with the having Harry just or not, I'm sorry, not Harry, Sam just leave her. It's so confusing because she has so many men. Um, yeah. Just, just kind of abandon her to go back to his fiance uh, back on the mainland. And you know, there is uh, Christine Baranski's the younger version of Christine Baranski and Julie Walters, who I believe are like Rosie and I don't even remember the name of Christine Baranski's Tanya. character. Tanya, yeah, Rosie and Tanya. Are, are there with her, and then they start singing this. It starts off as just Lily James singing the opening verse of Mamma Mia, and then it and then it like ratchets up the the jazziness of it, so to speak, the 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 tone of it, and, and it gets really. And of course, then you get the full lean in at the end with the full kind of performance of it. And I really appreciated that, and I and I still like 
when you hear that song performed, it still just does it for me, I think. And I, and I was wondering if it would, because the first movie obviously like just killed it with the, with dancing queen and mama Mia, and the fact that they could still pull it off in a slightly different way again, with the exception of dancing queen. Um, I was, I was impressed with the, both the, with how they did the old songs and also what they do with the new ones. Yeah. I have to say like, I, I, like I was saying in the intro, like I appreciate, I actually think that I appreciated some of the, the new songs a lot more, even though they're not as well known. However, mm-hmm. I, one of my, my favorite moment, which I won't, you know, say what it is yet because we'll get to that in the wrap up, but sure. actually does, it does involve one of the songs that they use in the last movie. I think that they, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about how they did different choreography and stuff. Yeah. I think they use this song really, really well in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that in the wrap up. But before we get to the wrap up, let's just talk about the ending briefly. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so, so what know, is this we, ambiguity that you're talking about? When, we in the will ending? do some spoilers. Okay. Yeah. Full spoiler. Um, I mean, like, I don't know why you care about them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Someone uh, could but, have spoiled I, this movie I, for me. It wouldn't I don't know. I mean, I, I probably just wasn't paying enough attention, but like, you know, they never really, I feel like they never really made it clear that Meryl Streep's character died. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking about her sort of like, oh, you know, I wish she could be here. You know, sort of like in the past tense and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I never, like, I, I never thought that she had died. And, you know, she's billed, like, on the poster and everything in this movie as if she's in the movie. And, you know, she does show up in the last 10 minutes. And is so I, I just wasn't sure at the end, like, if the scene that she sees when she's walking into the church, like, is that, is Meryl Streep actually there, or is she imagining that? Like, I don't know. It was just a little confusing to me. And also, okay, maybe this is something else I wasn't paying attention to, but does it not feel like that there was, like, it felt like they they went to sleep finding out that she was pregnant, and then the next day she woke up and the baby was born. Like, I I mean, I'm guessing some time passed there, but it was like all the characters were still together, and yet here's Amanda Seyfried with the baby. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to... to believe there was a miraculous birth? I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to have to roast you a little bit. I don't think you're paying attention at all during this movie. Okay. (laughs) Did you fall asleep? I guess I I wasn't, yeah. Uh, No, so I I think that, although it's never... They weirdly don't go out of their way to explicitly say it, but I'm pretty sure it's heavily implied, and definitely by the last scene I think it's clear that, that Meryl Streep's character, Donna, is dead. Um, okay. mainly because everyone's like crying whenever they talk about her and also yeah, but, they, but they play that almost like humorously like you know the fact that Julie Walters character keeps crying anytime Donna's mentioned like it's played for laughs so I don't know it, it just threw me off a little yeah, bit yeah that's true about that but I think the, the, with the interactions of Pierce Brosnan and uh, and yeah. uh, Amanda Seyfried's characters Sam and um, Sophie, I, I think it's pretty clear that she's dead, as well as the fact that the her picture is hanging on the wall in the hotel. I think that, it, like I said, it's heavily implied. I could be wrong, but like also, I'm That's pretty true. almost positive the last scene is supposed to be like her go, like her spirit watching, yeah. or like in the That's, in the church. That's fair enough. Yeah, and then it does just yeah, just to correct, just to like say this, I, it does say nine months later at the start of that scene, which would totally explain. That. Yeah, yeah. It, it does say nine months later, but that's okay. Okay. You, know, you could be forgiven. Not, Honestly, I'm not that sure that you miss that much if you just close your eyes and listen to this movie. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't blame and, you. And, and, you know, even it, it, it still does feel like really weird. That like, oh, all the characters are, are still here. Like, they, it's like they are in the same location almost as they were like the night before. But yeah, I mean, that's I guess true. If you have that, it is true. That title title card. You know, we're not perfect people. Um, and I don't think you need to be perfect when you go see Mamma Mia. So. Yeah, that's that's true. I, w- I guess I was just still just feeling myself from that duet of Fernando. But um, why not? You know, it was a great duet. Yeah, 
Uh, with that, why don't we move into the, the wrap-up phase for this movie? Um, so you kind of talked about it earlier, but what is your favorite moment in this movie? Yeah, absolutely. So I talked about this earlier. It's, it's actually right after Mamma Mia is sung. So I thought that was going to be my favorite. Like, when it was when it was performed, I thought that was going to be my favorite moment in the movie. I was like, all right, this was this was great. I loved it. And then literally one minute after after the singing of the song, which ends with Bill catching, uh, the younger version of Bill catching Sophie, uh, when she falls off at the end of the Mamma Mia performance. And they're talking. While they're talking, there's also Tanya, the younger versions of Tanya and uh, Rosie kind of in a t- at a table outside. And it's clear that that Rosie is into Bill and is very attracted to him. And she has this deadpan... Again, the, the actress... To give her credit, the actress's name is Alexa Davies. Uh, and she has this deadpan delivery of this line where she says... I'm not like into him like I want to like be the person who goes out to sea with him and like has like passionate sex with him or whatever. It's like I want to have his babies and grow old with him and then like scatter his ashes when he's dead. And it was just like so caught off guard by that in the deadpan delivery that I I just died. I laughed so yeah. hard. It was it's a very like weirdly vivid image. <laughs> yeah, no, very vivid, but not not too dissimilar <laughs> to the very vivid image of Christine Baranski talking about Andy Garcia, which we won't spoil for those people yeah. who will go see it. You'll know, you'll know when it happens. That's all. I'll say There's about no Christine mistaking Baranski. this line in the movie for sure. Um, but yeah, so for my favorite scene, you know, I hinted at it just a moment ago, but I really love the way that they use the song "I Have a Dream." Um, which is, of course, in the first movie. But the way that they use it in this movie is actually kind of the one moment where the two timelines sort of meld together. And it's when Lily James has, you know, gotten this... She's basically been been given this house, and, you know, the the woman says, you need to fix it up or whatever, but you can have the house. And so she's walking through the house singing the song, and she's looking at all of the, you know, because it's dilapidated dilapidated at this point and she's looking at all these little you know sort of dilapidated features of it and as she looks at a certain feature then we flash forward again to the timeline where sophie has completely renovated the house and she's singing the same song you know i have a dream and you know so so we see how the the house has gone from um you know from this dilapidated state to now it's you know it's beautiful and they're opening the you know it, it for a hotel and, you know, so you see basically Sophie fulfilling the dream that her mother had. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just a, a wonderful use of that song. Um, and yeah, yeah, just the way that they, they filmed the scene was, uh, yeah, I think they, so some of the songs, you know, we talked about how like Fernando feels really like shoehorned in, but this felt like a really natural use of that song and, and that fit really well with the plot of the movie. So I really enjoyed that scene. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. That's a, that's a great scene. Um, okay, well, then let's get into uh, the the final scores for this movie. Uh, what would you give this movie out of 10? I know this, this score is probably going to sound really low for how much I've talked about enjoying it, but it is what it is. Uh, 6.5. Yeah, I'm giving it a 7, and kind of like you said, I, I, I'm rating it based on what it is, not on, like, you know, conventional standards of what makes a great movie, because... That would be unfair because it's, it's not aiming to be that kind of a movie. So I'm giving it a seven with that caveat. Yeah, I mean, um, if if I approached it that way, I probably would rate it higher. But that's that's true. I probably I maybe it's six point five is a little well, no, high. I think your score is perfectly fair for for how you've talked about it. But. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I I really think that like if you're looking 
for to, to use your words, and I think this is a great way to summarize it. You text it to me. You've already talked about it on the podcast. But like this movie is unnecessary. Like you will be just fine if you don't see it. But you will also have a good two hours if you do see it. Like it's just it's it's worth it for the for the for the hang for the time. So yeah, it's the movie. Like I said, it's the movie they should have made the first time. Sure. Um, so while we may not have laid all our love on Mamma Mia, here we go again. Uh, after we take a short break, we will be discussing one of the most acclaimed movies of the year so far, Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade. We will be right back. certainly did i think that this movie we so i guess to to draw maybe a rough comparison and you'll forgive me if you disagree with me but in terms of we're talking about movies that have universally resonated with critics on a level i I think this movie's of ones this year i think is right up there with maybe a movie like tully but the difference is that i feel like i can actually connect with this person whereas of course i don't think i can actually there's only a subset of the population who maybe could connect with tully uh this I think this can speak to... With Marlo. To... Marlo was the uh, Charlie Stern character, actually, I believe. It was... It was, uh, it was uh, Oh, yeah, I was talking about a, the movie. A red herring, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, I was just talking about the movie. In general. But you, yes, you're right, Charlie Stern's character in Marley, yes, is who I was specifically referring to. But, yeah, no, it, I think that this movie and, and, and its its actor, its its lead role, Kayla, played by Elsie Fisher, I think you know, a lot of people, a lot more people, I think, can connect with this character and I think that it doesn't surprise me that this movie resonates deeply with critics. I, I think that about halfway through the movie, not dissimilar to how I felt watching Tully, I wasn't entirely sure where it was going. I mean, I, like, I had a pretty good idea, and I don't think I was wrong either, but I think that it was a really interesting... I, I, I wasn't totally vibing with the movie at all times, and that doesn't mean that it wasn't good, like I wasn't appreciating it. Uh, I, I think a lot of the scenes were like really difficult to watch and and sometimes yeah. for different reasons 
I think, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about one scene in particular that was difficult for a very particular reason. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I and I think that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like there's, we talked about one of my one of my highest rated movies of last year was Phantom Thread, but that movie wasn't very easy to watch. Uh, I, I think it has its like movies that aren't easy to watch don't always equate to being bad. And I, and I think that I felt that this movie from you know the first thirty to forty five minutes wasn't one that I found easy to watch. And that's and and maybe for one reason to to your point about resonation is that maybe because it I did connect with this character so much and, right. and what was happening on the screen before me which was this individual this eighth grader this eighth grade girl who was really struggling with life as an eighth grader like so many people do i think you know, she she was really struggling i think this movie did such a good job not just telling you that she was struggling but really showing you on screen how difficult it was for her and and the difficulties that she was facing made it difficult some of these scenes made it very difficult to watch and i think that that is praise for this movie that, you know, Bo Burnham, who I agree is, is probably the only recognizable name in this movie. He does a really wonderful job. Uh, I mean, directing these characters, I I think that he he writes this movie too, I believe. So it it really is his full direction in terms of, you know, what these characters are saying, how they're saying it, how they're delivering their performances. You know, the, I think all of these characters are pretty much no name actors and actresses. And that doesn't mean that they're not high-quality actors and actresses and they won't become uh, well-known for their acting chops. But, you know, I think you have to give a lot of credit to Bo Burnham here, both for his vision for this movie, his writing, and then also what you ultimately end up seeing on screen. Yeah, I think you have to give an incredible amount of credit to Bo Burnham because, you know, I'll say that that was the part of this movie which I was not expecting. I mean, now, after reading the reviews, after seeing the trailer, you know, I put it on my most anticipated list – I was expecting this movie's going to have good performances. This movie's going to have sharp writing. It's probably going to be really perceptive, uh, you know, and it's probably going to have some really relatable moments in it. But what I was not expecting was how, like, great the filmmaking is. Um, and, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm talking about some of the some of the choices which Bo Burnham makes, like, directorially. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about his work a little bit more on the movie a little bit in a little bit. But some of the, like, shots that he chooses – some of these like subtle things that he does with the characters in this movie are like stuff that you do not expect to see from a first time filmmaker. And and especially someone who's like, is a stand up comic for a living. Like he takes like some risks, I think um, with like some of his directorial choices and like, they absolutely pay off. Like this is a film of like uncommonly high quality from a directorial standpoint. Um, and I think it's also interesting that you say that you kind of knew where it was going because that's one of the things that I really liked about the script in this movie was that I didn't exactly know where it was going. Um, and there are all these moments in the in the story where you you know Kayla is faced with the, you know some moment and you think oh this is either going to go really badly or really good um, and. That was the, you know, that that's what I'm talking about, how this movie kept me guessing, because sometimes it went really well, and sometimes it went really badly. I mean, just to, to pinpoint a couple of moments, for example, like, the the moment where she first, uh, so she, she shadowed this girl named Olivia at the high school day, mm-hmm. um, and she comes home, and Olivia's given her a number, and, you know, Olivia seems like a really great person, and she decides that she's going to call Olivia. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking, oh my, this is like, this could, this could be really bad because, you know, she, 
Kayla has, is feeling like, you know, that she's made a friend out of this uh-huh. much older high, high school girl. Yeah. Um, and, but now, you know, it, it's, it's, it's entirely possible. It seems like that, that Olivia was just kind of pretending. Uh, so this could go really badly for her. Um, and it does like yeah. Olivia turns out to be like the most amazing person and like invites her to hang out and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of these moments where I was like, I legitimately did not see that coming. And yeah, on the flip to, side, to be fair, to be fair to you, I'm, I I want to clarify because I do agree with you. Like in the individual moments, yeah. I don't necessarily see what's coming, but on the macro level of the overall arc of the movie, I thought that was like pretty predictable personally. Um, okay. And again, I'm talking about the macro level, like not the individual moments, because I agree. I was yeah. I was surprised that that the particular conversation you're talking about went well. Yeah, and the same goes for like the karaoke scene as well, where she's at the pool party and she decides she's going to sing karaoke. And this is one of the things that I really like that Bo Burnham does, and he does it several times throughout the the uh, movie. Is instead of really like us hearing what's going on in the scene, we see what's going on in the scene, but and then we hear Kayla in the background. We hear Kayla's YouTube video that she has made like after the scene is happening. But you can kind of like gauge from what's going on just from the facial reactions like how the scene goes and you know i don't think that the karaoke scene like has any great payoff or anything but it's clearly like it doesn't go badly it doesn't go like you know it's not the unmitigated disaster that you're kind of expecting um but on the flip side like we have this scene and i think it's the one that you're hinting at in the back of the car um with one of olivia's friends Mm. and i think his name's riley riley yeah and you know again starting off with this scene i was like well, you know, I think I feel like this is going to go badly, but I've also felt like that at other points in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I was pr- I was pretty badly, sure I was, I was pretty sure that this one was going to go pretty badly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, like I said, I, I was giving Bo Burnham some credit, but you know, that's what I that's what I like is that the the movie keeps you guessing and it has these moments where you really don't know where the story is going to go because you don't know really what type of a movie is going to be like is this going to be sort of a heartfelt up, uplifting movie or is it going to be an unflinching portrayal of like middle school life and i think that miraculously it somehow pulls off being both yeah i was, like was going to ask you incredible fashion i was going to ask you what you thought it was so that answers that question I, th- I think it's both and like i think that it's a really tight line to walk but i think that bo burnham walks it incredibly well yeah um but not to you not to hype too much uh, praise on Bo Burnham until we get to him. Yeah, I want to talk because I want to talk about the performances as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, really, the, two, the there's really just two lead performances in this movie, yeah. and they're both pretty pretty special for me. So let's talk first about Elsie Fisher as Kayla. Sure. Yeah, Elsie Fisher. You know, I have of course I have absolutely no idea what she's like in real life. I don't know how much of this yeah. is acting for her. I, I don't know what her experiences have been. I'm actually not even sure how old she is. Um, I don't know if she's like of the age to be a uh, middle schooler. I think just from how old she looked, it felt about right. Like maybe she was like high school age, but, but it yeah. Felt- so I, so I was actually watching a vid- interview with Bo Burnham and Elsie Fisher about this. Mm-hmm. And what he said was, and I really liked what the, the lineman he had, cause he said that he cast her because everyone else who came into audition was a confident person trying to be shy, like pretending to be shy but she was a shy person pretending to be confident. And like, he was like, that's Ooh. exactly what I was looking for with the character. And like, that's exactly what, how shy people are in real life. It's not that they don't have anything to say. It's that they're always trying to say something and they just can't. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, great piece yeah. of casting then from him. And, and I say great piece of casting. Cause I think Elsie Fisher does a fantastic job playing her role. Yeah. I think 
to, to talk about both Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton at the same time here, because I think this is some of the, like one of the scenes that I can think of most that I think that resonates with me in terms of how good their performances are together. Because you bear, I mean, I don't think there is a scene where you see her father. I think who I believe his name is Mark. Um, I don't think you ever see him on screen without her. So they're always like when the when he's on the screen, she's on the screen. But the scene that comes to my mind as an example of how good it is is when they're. I think it's actually the first time you see him. And they're at the dinner table, and she's on her yeah. phone with her earbuds, her earbuds in, scrolling through. I what I think I think it's Instagram. I'm not sure, but he's trying to have a conversation with her, and you know, give a, give the poor guy some credit. He's he keeps trying really hard, and, and eventually he does he does give up. But he uh, she both both of them do such a great job playing their roles. I think. She like keeps taking her earbuds in and out, gets frustrated with him. Set, you know, uses uses a very petty excuse of "It's Friday." You told me I can do anything I want on Friday. And it's so realistic. It no, honestly is. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like it, I can. Yeah. It's so petty, but like exactly what you, exactly realistic to what you'd expect. I think, and I think that they both deliver their like frustrated performances so well. Like you, you can feel the frustration of Elsie Fisher's character Kayla, and you can also see the kind of almost the despair of of Josh Hamilton's character Mark in that moment of like yeah this is a compromise that I've made but damn it makes me really sad like I just I just I thought their performances were wonderful yeah and another thing too is that they're you know we talk a lot a lot of times about the acting that actors do when they're not speaking and I think there's a lot of that in this movie you know some of which I've talked about like in those scenes where we're, we're seeing a scene happening, but what we're hearing is um, mm-hmm. Kayla's YouTube video. So we're, we're really relying on actors to tell us what's going on with only their facial expression and, and body language and tell mm-hmm. us how the scene is going. But also the fact that there's so many close-ups in this movie. Like, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but oh, like, yeah. there are so many close-up shots of the characters' faces. Yep. Like, And I think it, it, it's it's a smart choice because it's like it, it, it's – trying to portray like how in your face this environment is mm-hmm. that Kayla finds herself in on a daily basis. Yeah. It's very, um, very personal to, to your point on the shots. And I, I, I found them particularly to be up close and in your face. Uh, usually when, when I'm mean, not with, with some exceptions, but usually when Kayla is on her phone and using it to like almost show how, the the phone yeah you can't see the phone always in the shot in fact usually you can't see the phone in the you shot you can see like the reflection yeah you can see the ref, you can see the light on her like lighting up her face uh, a lot and to to show her like consum I mean obviously to show her how much she's consuming through her phone and I think that those shots are really powerful images especially with how they I mean usually this is used in a negative way but I think this is actually a positive in this case to reinforce the point but it, they they really beat you to death with those shots. Yeah, and to, to talk about Josh Hamilton as well, like, I mean, this this performance to me is like, it's like the dad version of what Laurie Metcalf did in Lady Bird last year. Like, mm-hmm. he it, it's such a good performance, and like, he, he, he perfectly portrays this guy who is, you know, he's trying so hard to like, show his daughter how he feels about her, like, the fact that he loves her, um, but like, he just can't get through to her, and he doesn't know like what he has to do, like what he needs to do um, to get through to her, even though like he's not doing anything wrong, really. It's, it's more about her. It's more about the way that she's reacting and the, the point she is in her life than it is about the things that he's doing. Because he's not like a super dorky dad or anything. Um, like he's just, 
he's just trying to be honest with her. And then finally we get this like amazing scene where they're in the backyard at the fire. Um, and this scene is my own. I mean, like this is a trope of coming of age movies that that, like this kind of scene, like you are required to have some like really profound moment with your parent in a coming of age movie. So this is, this fits it perfectly. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's actually where I was going is that I feel like in a lesser movie, we would have seen this scene and like kind of rolled our eyes and said, yep. oh, this is really cheesy. But he, like, this movie earns it so hard. Like, from all, like, after all the, everything you see that these characters are going through, like, this movie totally earns that scene. And Josh Hamilton totally owns that scene because it feels like he's just improving, like, every line that he's saying. Like, it feels like this is a real dad talking to his daughter and saying, this is how I feel. It doesn't feel like here's a cheesy Sandra Bullock speech that someone has written for me to, like, try and get me an Oscar nomination. Like, I I can't stress enough how much I was like, this movie, like, deserves to have this scene in it. Like, this this is a movie which has totally earned having this kind of a, you know, very sentimental scene, but not one that is over the top, at least in my opinion. And I think it's a scene that a lot of kids and a lot of parents are going to relate to. Um, And I I just love that scene. Yeah, I thought it was... I really wasn't sure how Kayla's character was going to react to that, like in that at the end of that scene. And definitely for me, one of the most moving moments of the of the entire movie is that moment at the end of his like, I mean, monologue is probably the best word for it, right? Exactly. Yeah. It feels rambly. It, it feels exactly like you said, improv, off the cuff. And who knows if it was? Maybe I don't know. Um, well, and I think that the reason for that is because. He had, he's sensing that here's a moment where she's like slightly opening up and like she's maybe like slightly receptive to what he's going to say. So he just wants to say everything while he actually has this opportunity. Yeah, and and the most moving moment for me in this film is at the end of this is at the end of this when she just kind of collapses into into his arm into his lap on his chair. And I wasn't sure that that moment was going to come. Like I thought I thought that was probably what was going to happen or like something like that. And you know, e- even though I've like expected something like that to happen, it still hit me pretty hard, and I have so much appreciation for that scene for exactly what you're describing. This movie earns it, and not only does it earn it, it doesn't feel super cliche or cheesy when it happens. Because you know, e- even if it's he says what every parent would love to say to their child who's like going through the experiences that Kayla is in this movie. Um, it, it just it still feels so genuine and so authentic delivered by Josh Hamilton it's a great scene and I want to talk more a little bit more about Bo Burnham too because you know obviously he's the mastermind behind that scene he's the mastermind behind this whole movie like um, you know I, I think it's pretty amazing that he was able to write from a 13 year old girl's perspective in the modern times like so clearly and so perceptively um, although he does talk about in interviews that I've seen how you know, he, he consulted a lot of teenagers and just, like, talked with them. Didn't, like, you know, he wasn't, like, interviewing them or anything. He just talked with them to try and, like, learn the beats of their daily life and everything. Um, so, but, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've talked a lot about how I think he did a pretty exceptional job of this movie. Uh, you know, do you have anything else to add about his job, either from a directorial standpoint or from a writing standpoint? I don't know if I have much more to add, but I will just say that my extent of, like, my... I mean, I've watched his stand-up before, but the extent of my interact or like my knowledge of Bo Burnham was just that he had a very minor role in The Big Sick last year. Like he was one of the okay. other comedians in The Big Sick that yeah. uh, Kumail's character 
um, well, his character, his re- he's a real life person, uh, Kum- Kumail uh, does stand up with, and I just thought it was so funny. To your point, I mean, not funny is not even probably the right word, but I just thought it was so weird that that guy who's like doing stand up and just like delivering savage lines to this, one of the other people who's doing stand up with them is also the person writing and directing this movie. It, it's a, it, it just it marvels me. Like I am marvelled yeah. at that at that reality. Yeah, I kind of have a similar experience because Bo Burnham actually came to my university oh, cool. when I was in college, uh, and I didn't go see him. Uh, I, I remember people talking about, you know, that they were, were excited to go see him, but I was like, this guy just looks like another dumb white guy comedian who I want to enjoy, like, you know, like Adam Sandler or something. And yeah. like, I, now I, I realize that I was giving the man no credit whatsoever because he's made a pretty amazing movie. Um, yeah. But let's talk about, um, just before we wrap up with eighth grade, like, uh-huh. how does this compare to other um coming of age movies either like yeah. quality wise or like the themes that it touches on um yep. you know wh- well, where okay. do you think this stands because we're you know we're, we're living in a time where there's like kind of a glut of coming of age movies like there's been a lot in recent years and a lot of very good ones too yeah and, and to, i think to right before i get to this there are a couple things we haven't talked about that i just want to briefly mention um yeah sure and they're, they're both negatives which is why i want to mention them oh, they're okay. two of the things i don't like about the movie uh, one is actually the score. I think the score is too much. That's just me. Oh, see, I, I felt the exact opposite. That's I, fine. I thought it was great, yeah. I think, I think it was great to a point, and then there were moments where I was actually just like, I don't feel like I really need music right now to absorb this. I thought that way about, I know we, we've talked about this, you've talked about this movie before on the podcast, and I thought there were moments in Thoroughbreds, although the music is 95% of the time amazing for that movie, there's like 5% of the time where it's too much. Okay. Uh, and I And I feel maybe a little bit... To a greater extent in this movie than that, I'd, I'd say something maybe like eighty twenty uh, on, on this one. I just think that it does a really good job with what it's trying to do, but it also tries to do more, and okay, it didn't need enough. to. That's just me. Like it's not a huge complaint. It's just like I thought yeah. it was a little bit overbearing for me. And then the second part is that like some of the peripheral characters who we haven't mentioned, as realistic as I'm sure you might uh, argue that they are, I think that they're they're almost. Um, they're almost too much as well. In particular, I think Gabe Gabe is a is a character who I really Oh, come on. How could you not love that kid though? I don't know if, Oh, sorry, not Gabe. I, I take it back entirely. Aiden. The the okay, total yeah, douchebag. Yeah. Oh, no, Ga- awesome. Gabe yeah. is great. Gabe is great. Gabe is awesome. Got yeah. confused there for a second. Aiden is a caricature. Uh uh like I'm sure that person exists in real life, like I have no doubt. I just like don't need to see him in a movie. Um and I didn't like it. Personally, I didn't like. Uh, there's one particular scene that I don't think I really feel like I need to ruin, but there's a particular scene in the movie where Elsie Fisher tries to engage essentially with get, with Aiden, and like I get what it was trying to do, and it did what it was trying to do, but I I don't I one I didn't think the movie needed it personally, and two it, I just didn't like it very much. I just thought it's a bad a bad thing to show on screen personally, not because. The, the content didn't resonate with me or the content wasn't like real or relevant. I just thought that it, this movie didn't need that scene. And I don't think that people who watch this movie like need to be inspired to do something similar. That was just me. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you that I think it was an unpleasant scene to watch, but I think it does serve a purpose in, in the movie because you know, there, it, it shows that she's having an experience with like a bad dude and, you know, like, the, 
after the the back of the car scene, Riley's going off about how like, oh, you know, I'm trying to do you a favor or whatever. Like you're gonna you know you're gonna lose your virginity to some like really sucky guy or whatever. Yeah. But eventually, what we see is that you know in the in the final scene, she goes on a date with Gabe, who yeah. is you know the nice guy. He's he's, he's hilarious. A he's a dork. Um, yeah, and so I think that we see that she's learning from. Um, like as unpleasant as the experience is that she has with Riley, she's learning from her experience with him and um, from her experience with Aiden that these are not the types of guys that she wants to be associating with. Um, and so I think it's important that we see that transition for her. Um, I think, but I, think I, I don't know, that was just my take on it. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think like, I think there are ways to accomplish that to like show that like guys are shitty in like ways that aren't, this way uh i'm not i'm i want to be really clear like i i actually surprisingly really appreciated the scene with riley in terms yeah. of how it was how it was handled especially like how and pretty definitely i think go too far with it or anything yeah yeah no it wasn't gratuitous and i think it, and, it, and it delivered the emotional impact that like anything beyond that also would have delivered mm-hmm. and exactly. and it didn't I, I think i think it just did a really good job and i just like don't think I mean, and like you, you could. I think you could make a similar argument for this scene with Aiden, because nothing ultimate, like nothing really terrible, ends up happening. Well, I, I, well, that's not the right way to phrase it. It, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, because yeah. I, I think that what happened still was terrible. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I think that it, do, it doesn't feel necessary with the riot. Like, I think you're like his, in, like the, the context around Aiden is enough such that like you don't need this particular interaction. To get it, and I think that you could have swapped it out for something else that doesn't involve like child pornography. Um, but like you know, I, I also understand. I also understand. Like I'm not. I'm not making an argument that the content isn't like realistic or like relevant to talk about. Uh, just, just that I don't know. I didn't. It didn't just. It just didn't resonate well with me in that in that particular moment. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about where it stands in other coming events. And I'll, I'll just chime in here sure. first, maybe to, to yep. sort of get it going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to pick up on something that um, I saw in a review. Actually, this was uh, it was Whitney Seibold from IGN who said this on Movie Review Talk on Collider um, the other day. He said that this movie works because so many, colli- so many uh, coming-of-age movies that we see recently are so focused on nostalgia. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense if you think about, like, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower or Sting Street, something like those movies are, are you know, they're stuck in the past. Um, and not, not nothing against those movies. But this is a movie which is very much about what it, it is like to be a teenager now. And I think that it captures that absolutely perfectly. With, the, you know, the social media-obsessed genre and every... Uh, generation, not genre. Uh, social media-obsessed generation. Like, I think it makes that point without being like, you know, Baz Luhrmann, we're going to hammer this into your head about it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I, I think we get it without it sounding like your dad lecturing you about how you need to get off your phone. Yeah, I totally, I actually think that's a, I, I mean, to, to give Whitney Seibel the, the credit, I think that's a really incite, in, you know, perceptive, incisive point about this movie is that, you know, even thinking about the other coming of age movies that I've seen this year, which include Love, Simon, and is there another one that we've talked about on the podcast? I'm not sure. Maybe you could consider Thoroughbreds one, but I don't know. I hope that <laughs> no one. They are teenagers. I mean, I hope that no one considers Thoroughbreds a coming of age <laughs> movie. But regardless, I I think that just just to use Love Simon as an example, it's it, it is nostalgic 
not in a way that's like not not set in modern times and calling back to older you know you know people trying to resonate with people who are like our age or uh even older i think that this movie leans so hard into this person being like born in 2005 or like whatever the math would work out to be and and i really appreciate it. like the conversation for like to to beat home this point like the conversation that she has or the i guess people have around her i should say when she goes and hangs out with olivia and her olivia's three friends at the mall the conversation they're having about like like this person's a generation apart from me like i don't like you can argue whether that's like right or wrong but they talk about how like oh it's so weird that like you like you got snapchat in fifth grade, like, in fifth grade exactly yeah. yeah and like i got snapchat and, or like i got instagram there there was like some other like corollary conversation they were having right before that too that discussed something similar and i was like Wow, yeah, like th- this movie, kind of subtly, just is just like this is as as temporally relevant as it gets for a coming of age film, and I appreciate that that is like not something that I've seen in other similar movies. That being said, I also think this movie is more of a, like a drama, like in, in a in a in a very literal sense than a lot of the other coming of age movies that have re- that I'm thinking particularly in Love Simon. I, I know that there are dr- similarly dramatic coming of age movies like that you have just referenced, like Perks of Being a Wallflowers. A, a pretty good drama in there as well, but I just really appreciated the the different take on the genre than I think I've gotten in the past, like handful of coming of age movies that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that it again to go back to the social media point. Like, I think that it 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 shows how social media can, like, honestly, it how yes, it, people are obsessed with it, but it also shows how it can sort of be used in a good way as well. Because, I mean, the first interaction she has with Gabe is, like, after the pool party, I mean, is, like, on Instagram. He sends her a message. And the DMs. Obviously, that, yeah, he slides into her DMs. So, obviously, that that, uh, that leads to something very good for her. Um, so, I think that it, it, it um, portrays that very well. Um, so, let's, why don't we, we get into the wrap-up phase now for this movie. Sure. Um, and talk about what our favorite scene or moment was. Yeah, so I think this is a tough one, right? Because there's... Uh, we've talked about a couple other movies that are like this, where it really feels like this This movie flows together really well, so it's hard to pick out a particular scene. And there are discrete moments in this movie that like, don't make any mistake. Like There are discrete events that happen in this film that segment the movie, but it, it, it's hard to call the, those. Those feel like extended scenes, so to speak, because they are longer in nature... Uh, e- even though the, the movie in, in some way does feel a little bit episodic. But I think that my... So so with that being said, I think my favorite moment is one that's already been referenced just in terms of how it impacted me. And that is, of course, the scene between Kayla and her father, Mark, uh, at the end, the what, we, what I called a, a trope of the coming-of-age drama, and you rightfully say, respond that, you know, this movie earned it more so than any other. And I think that the moment where she kind of jumps into his arms or collapses in his arms however you view it is such a touching moment and I, I find it I find it hard to see anything in this movie past that yeah I mean I, I love a lot of scenes in that movie including in this movie including the one that you just talked about I mean I also love any of the scenes involving Olivia the character of Olivia because I think she's such like a heartwarming character oh so yeah it's like again you, you don't you don't expect uh, you don't expect to see uh, you know this character in the movie because everything has been going so poorly it's, um, it's like the the, un, the unrealistic person in this movie is definitely <laughs> olivia 
Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent. I'm not going to say that these people don't exist either. Um, sure. But, but I, I'm going to go with a, a scene that, or, or uh, it's more of a moment, I guess, that I think portrays perfectly what I'm talking about with Bo Burnham's filmmaking and how how provocative it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, the pool party scene, like the first moment where, so we see Kayla, she changes into her swimsuit and then, she like goes over to the sliding glass door and she looks out and we see like, you know, we, the music starts off and it's this really aggressive music. And we see all of these like, you know, little vignettes of what all of these kids are doing. Um, and, uh, you know, they're jumping into the pool, they're being rowdy, they're pushing each other. They're like, you know, the boys and girls are like flirting and everything. And then we go back and we see Kayla standing behind the, like behind the glass door like we see a face on the other side of the glass and it's like a perfect uh you know shot of she's on that she's on the outside looking in when yep. it comes to yep. um the, you know this group of people and then so she opens the door she goes out and we have like this tracking shot which just follows her as she walks all around the pool and you know all in the background we see all of this going on and yet here she is just calmly walking around the pool and finally she you know she goes into the pool and it's like she's here she is wading into society and trying to you know fit in with everyone else which of course she's never going to be able to do um but i think that he portrayed like the anxiety and everything all of the emotions in that scene so perfectly just through his filmmaking and the use of music and you know the cinematography like i think it was an exceptionally well done scene yeah and that's a that's a perfect example of the exception of what i was talking about earlier of usually you get the close-ups when she's on her phone and you see the screen lighting up her face and this i think is one of the great exceptions where you get a close-up of her not with her phone but exactly what you've described and it's a wonderful it's wonderful cinematography wonderful direction and wonderful vision and how you just see her seeing everything and it's it is a very powerful way to deliver that moment okay let's put a score on it what are you giving eighth grade out of ten Oh, I have a tough one with this one, but I think this might be... I'd have to go back and double-check my scores. This might be the highest score I've given so far this year. 8.8. 8. 8. Well, um, this is also going to be the highest score I've given this year because I was going to give this movie a 9.5, but I think that I've talked myself up just in our, our review of it. I think our conversation has made me like it even more. So I'm going with the 10. Um, oh, my I, goodness. This is the best movie of the year so far. 10 out of 10. Is that our, is that our first Some Like It's Got 10? It, it, it might be our first whammy. Um, Man, you talk, you talk, you didn't just talk yourself up from a 9.5. You talked yourself up to a 10. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that was a natural place to go. Like, I think that, you know, I could have gone to like 9.7 or 9.8, but at that point, I think that there's like nothing that's holding me out from going to 10. And I don't want to be one of these people who's like, oh, a 10 is this elusive thing, which is never going to be obtained by any movie. Because I think that in a given year, there are four or five movies come out where I, you know, can legitimately say, that's a 10. And this is one of them. I think this movie's amazing. Uh, it, it is a great movie. I, again, I don't think anyone's surprised that I came out lower than you, just that I had my critiques, which you have said did not resonate as critiques for you, which totally makes sense why you'd give it a 10. I think it's fair. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we can both agree that while eighth grade isn't a time we want to revisit, eighth grade the movie is one which we will be coming back to in the future. Um, we are going to take our final break of the show now, but when we return, I'll be sharing my thoughts on Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace before we run through the big stories in the Schmodown world and all of the hot news items from Comic-Con. 
We'll be right back. Also, a nice metaphor for anarchy. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a minute to discuss another new movie and another movie which is generating a lot of critical buzz uh, that I managed to catch last weekend, and that is the movie Leave No Trace. Um, and now, this is the long-awaited follow-up, um, not in the sense that it's a sequel, but in the sense that it's the next film from this director. It's a long-awaited next film from Deborah Granick, who, um, if you know her, you know she made the movie Winner's Bone. Um, back five, six years ago. Very, um, which very big fan movie. of that movie. Yes, a- a- excellent movie. It's the movie which put Jennifer Lawrence on the map, got her her first Oscar nomination. Um, and, and people have been waiting a while to, for, her, for her next film, and she has delivered it with Leave No Trace. And I have to say, I think it was absolutely worth the wait, um, because this is also one of the best movies of the year. Um, and this, is, this movie is about... Um, a father and daughter, um, not unlike eighth grade, um, but very much unlike eighth grade. Um, this movie is set in, I guess you could say it's set in the wilderness, um, in a, in a, in a national park is where it, it starts out. Uh, in, Por- and, in Portland, Oregon, I believe. Yes. Yes. Is where, is where we start out at least. And, um, we see the, the main characters, um, Will, played by Ben Foster, is the dad, and uh, Tom, played by Thomason McKenzie, is the daughter. They are living in this national park. Um, ben Foster's character, the dad, is a he's a military vet who has experienced severe PTSD. Like he can barely even be around people for a long time without freaking out. So he's basically him and his daughter are, are you know making a life for themselves out in this national park. Um, but as the movie opens, you know, we're, we're introduced to their lifestyle, but then their lifestyle is interrupted when social services shows up, um, and basically says, look, you can't live here anymore. Like this is public property. Um, and, uh, and, and basically, um, puts them, uh, places them with a, with a family who, who have like a, a separate guest house that, um, you know, they, they have graciously allowed, uh, Tom and Will to live in, um, but as you might expect, things uh, things don't go well, um, and Will has a hard time adjusting to this new lifestyle. While um, Tom starts seeing sort of the life which she could have been living um, if not for her father's condition and, and the actions of her father, um, and it, you know it, it kind of starts a gradual rift between them, um, and the tension between these two characters is what makes up. Uh, most of the rest of the movie, um, you know, I don't think this movie's for everyone. It's it is very slow moving, but I think um, yeah. deliberately so, yeah. and I think that it works to its benefit because you know we talked about with the movie like Adrift. I kept thinking of the movie Adrift because we talked about how the way that that movie was structured really ruined the you know the feeling of like any sort of feeling of like desperation or anything that we would feel for these characters in their situation. 
but I didn't. I, I felt the exact opposite way about Leave No Trace because the movie does move so slowly because it does take its time developing the characters and their relationship together, um, and it doesn't do stupid flashbacks or anything like they did in Adrift. Um, emotionally, you are feeling everything with these characters, and you're feeling sort of the desperation that that Will feels as a father of. You know, he can't fix his condition. Like, he, he, he can't fix his PTSD. He's always going to feel the way that he is. And, you know, the only person he has in the world is his daughter. Um, and, like, the bond that they share is obviously extremely close. But at the same time, you know, he, he has this feeling of hopelessness because he's he knows that he's holding his daughter back from a different life. Um, and that, you know, she's not the one for with the condition. She, you know, in, in a... In a, in a climactic scene, she, she says that to him. She says, I'm not this, you're the sick one, I'm not the sick one. Um, and so, you know, there's this, there's this tension, and it gradually builds, I think, to a very natural, very authentic, very emotional moment at the end of this film. And it's not a big moment. It's not, um, you know, it's not a big explosion or anything. It's, it's just like a, a gradual moment where that tension comes to a head and something has to be done. Uh, and it... it happens in just a very lovely scene um and yeah i again i want to give a lot of credit to deborah granite and i want to give a ton of um, credit to the actors as well again i think this is another incredibly well acted movie i mean these two characters again are mainly the only two characters in this movie um there's a couple auxiliary characters who pop up but don't have huge roles um and they're on scene in every scene and i mean they they completely sell this relationship i think that thomas and mckenzie like Elsie Fisher, this is an actress who hasn't, you know, done anything before this movie, um, but she really makes a name for herself. Like, I think it's a fantastic performance again, um, and I think this movie is absolutely worth seeing. You know, I don't think it's the most conventionally enjoyable movie ever, but it's an extremely well-made film, and I found myself, like, very uh, connecting with it very emotionally, um, despite, you know, maybe its slow pace. Um, so I give it a 9.4. I, I really enjoy it, Leave No Trace. Yeah, that that doesn't surprise me that that's the rating that you're giving it based on uh, its hundred percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. There you go. You can't argue with that. It's one. I mean, I you can, but you'd probably be wrong. I mean, I don't think you can argue with the tomato score. I, I mean, like if the tomato score is what the tomato score is. You can argue that it doesn't deserve it, maybe, but you can if you're Brett Ratner. Yeah, well, Brett Ratner can be Brett Ratner, and <laughs> he'll be just fine on his own. I think that I I haven't seen this movie. It's on my. It certainly is on my July movies I want to see. The ones that I haven't seen so far, this the ones that I've missed so far, I should say. There, there is, of course, still Mission Impossible Fallout next week. But the ones yes. that I've missed so far are uh, th- this one, Leave No Trace, as well as Skyscraper, which I know is a completely different kind of movie than Leave No Trace. Yeah. But, but this one is, is one that if I, if I don't get to it uh, because of the, the hustle and bustle of my daily life, uh, it will be certainly one that I'm watching out for to rent on iTunes or if it pops up on Netflix sometime this year. I'd, I really want to see this before award season. It's, it's very well done. And I think, I hope that it does get recognition at award season, even though it's a, it's a very small film. Yeah, it's a small film. Um, but, but Bleecker Street is a good indie studio, uh, like A24. Um, yeah, and I mean, Deborah Granick's last film got an Oscar nominated, got two actually, because yeah. John Hawks was also nominated. Yeah, I was going to say, one, Deborah Granick clearly likes The Wilderness. And yeah. Uh, two, I think that Deborah Granick directing this gives this movie a better chance of getting nominated than, say, I hate to break it to you, but eighth grade. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Yes, we will. But like I said, I, I, 
I want to see this movie. I, I know I talk. I, I will say that I'm usually good for seeing movies that I want to see and that I that you rate highly because I have seen Thoroughbreds now since the last time we recorded the podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think we need to like dive in or like a revisit or review uh-huh. of that. But I thought it was a really great movie. I think that the relationship and the character of Olivia Cook in this movie, whose name escapes me at this moment, uh, her character at least in in the film is really interesting. I think that that the themes that it explores with who is really the quote unquote, I say this very loosely, right? The, the evil character in the, in the movie, yeah. it asks that question brilliantly. And I think that it doesn't answer it for you. It leaves you to decide. But I think that there's a particular line at the end of the movie that I really enjoyed. It's not necessarily even at the end of the movie. It might, actually might be midway through the movie where Olivia Cook's character says like, Oh, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm incapable of good or that, it, yeah, it's not that it's not that I'm incapable of being good. It's that I just have to work a little bit harder than everyone else. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a line that was really it was a beautiful line in my opinion, and really speaks to that movie. Not again, not as high as you were on the film. Uh, I already talked a little bit briefly about it earlier this episode actually in terms of its score, but I do want to say that I uh, I think I'm I'm rating it at about um, I think I think I decided to rate it around uh, an eight point seven. Great. Well, let me ask you two brief questions then, because sure. you know it is one of my favorites of the year as well. Absolutely, um, go ahead. What is, first of all, what did you think about Anton Yelchin's performance? Second of all, how did you think? What did you feel about the, the those last two minutes? That you know, I've gone back and forth kind of on how I felt about them. Yeah, you kind of waffled on it. Um, yeah, that's how I did with the Florida Project last year. Honestly, to be fair, but I, I thought I still yeah. don't know how I feel about the ending. Yeah, I thought Anton Yelchin's character. Well, well, one, it didn't look like Anton Yelchin at all. In the no. in the movie, which I, it took me a moment to realize that like oh that's that's Anton Yelchin, um, like that is that is his last performance, and but I thought it was really well done. It, in some ways, it might have been over the top for me. Uh, okay, he might have almost overdone it. At the same, I, mean, I can see that because it is kind of an understated movie. Like the character, like the performances are kind of understated. So I can, I can see maybe why you would feel that way. Yeah, no, I thought that his his character was the ex- to your point was almost the exception of like how characters were often portrayed in the movie, which is fine. It's it's not like it's a bad thing. It just made it just left me with a sense of like, oh, like that character was like really the character is too too strong of a word. It's not a caricature, but it was almost yeah. overdone. I know that what you're saying, yeah. that being said, like to your point about the movie being mostly understated. I thought that this movie, in some ways, like really lent on extremes. Not not that they overstated the characters, but like the characters themselves were on the extremes of everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, like, and again, I, I want to separate the like the delivery of the of the characters and like what the characters were, because obviously Olivia is like the Olivia Cook's character is the extreme of someone who you're like when you really hear her talk, you're like, wow, like this girl. Is out there. Is out there. Um, At the same time, like for totally different reasons, you have Anya Taylor Joy's character, who's also way out there in terms of like being a spoiled brat, like trying to get what she wants. Like for some reason, our conversations had led me to believe that like both these characters were like psycho going into the movie, and I don't think that like Anya Taylor. I don't think Annie Taylor Joy's character is psycho. I just think that she's a totally spoiled brat who like is hell bent on like getting what she wants. 
And like uh, that's, that's a, interesting because see, my take was that she's actually ends up being the crazier one in the end. Like I think that's what you get out of those final two moments, at least for me. Oh sure, absolutely. Like no, she's totally the crazier one. Like quote like to to, yeah. to put like air quotes around that. She's the yeah. crazier one. But I think the like in terms of actually being like sociopathic or psychotic. I know that those, like, I want to be clear, like, I understand those are two very different things. Um, yeah. And I actually had a discussion with someone about, who also watched this movie, about, like, okay, who is sociopathic, who is psychotic. But, like, in terms of that, like, I was led to believe that, like, both the characters were either one of those two. And I just think that, like, Ani Taylor's Joy is, like, the the extreme of being so spoiled that you're willing to do whatever it takes. Not necessarily whatever it takes, but, like, you are open to doing whatever it is, like, whatever it requires to get what you want. And, of course, like, the final scenes that you're, that you're talking about, uh, I don't want to. I don't particularly want to spoil anything about the movie. Yeah, yeah. But but like there is a moment where like after the like climactic event occurs, where you get this really weird scene where she like goes and like Anya Taylor Joy's character goes and like cuddles with uh, Olivia Cook's character. It's such a haunting scene. I love it. Though. Oh no, I I am so into it. Like that was like yeah. the defining point of the movie for me. And I and was that's like, what I'm saying. I almost wish it had end, ended right there. Yeah, and, and I think that I see what you're saying about the, the last scene not being necessary. Um, that being said, I got something out of that final scene. Yeah. At the same time, maybe it would have been more powerful for it to end. Like, maybe I didn't need it. Maybe I just, maybe I didn't need that extra, I don't know, two yeah, that's kind 90 of, well, seconds. that's kind of where I'm at on it right now. Like, I can see maybe what it adds, but also, like, I don't think it's something so substantial that we couldn't have just ended the movie two minutes earlier and maybe had a more powerful immediate impact. But. Sure, yeah, I, I'm, with, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm with you on being unsure about whether, like, which it is that I want. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, that's, I think it's the sign of a good movie that we're still uh, still debating it. But, sure, um, no, it, it's, it, I, I hope, well, well, this is the discussion we had, right? Like, I'm not actually sure that this movie can qualify for awards because it actually debuted last year. Last yeah. year. So I'm not I'm not sure if this will qualify for award season this year, but I don't know why it wasn't at oh if so I wasn't I'm I'm confused why it wasn't at award season last year, but we'll see we'll see. Probably too small, but yeah, um, I would love to see it get recognized. Obviously. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's get into the showdown a little bit. We didn't get uh, to discuss it last time, but uh, I mean this has been a chaotic again with a K. A uh, couple of weeks in the Schmodown, and we'll start with the Collider Collision, which is, of course, the big summer event for the Schmodown. And, you know, most of these matches went the way that we were expecting. I mean, Mark Andreco, he had a hard time in his triple threat match, but he did come out on top. He had a hard time out. in that, to be clear, Janine kind of blew it. <laughs> Janine blew it in the third round. I think she she couldn't handle the pressure of the lights. Yeah, her um, her missing the Batman Begins question about who was the real who was the real Raza Ghoul and Batman Begins. I was like, I don't like, know if she thought it was a trick question or something, and they were looking for like Ken Watanabe, but no. Um, but yeah, so Mark Andreco won that match, and he gets a number one contender match now against big time Ethan Irwin, uh, who hopped in the uh, post match interview with a couple things to say, mm-hmm. um, and then. Alex Damon crushed Bruce Green to win the Star Wars Championship. Although all credit to Bruce Green for like actually showing up and yeah. you know at least giving Alex Damon a title challenge. He had, um, I think he said he had thirty six to forty eight hours notice on it, so that's uh, pretty yeah, insane. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, credit to him. I will say Alex Damon. I really like his. I want to just want to stop there and say I really like his character. And yeah. my goodness, like I know I've said I say this to you every single time I watch his Star Wars matches, but like his intro music is fire. 
like he has the solo intro music which is great yeah and in terms of his knowledge at this point like honestly i think he's on the same level as sam whitworth like i know we kind of hold sam whitworth to like this impossible standard to meet because he is so good but i think if we ever get a damon whitworth match in the future like he can absolutely go toe-to-toe with him and yeah, i mean he, he has did. gone toe-to-toe yeah. with him before in that five-way match yeah he, he even, lost on the five-point question better since then yeah i mean he lost on the five-point question to whitworth so yeah because Sam Whitmer got that question that if you believe Brian Davids, it's because the match was rigged. But um, yep. anyway, uh, we also saw uh, Rachel Cushing win pretty comfortably in the second round of the Inner Geekdom division, beating Eric Zipper. Another um, perfect round from her. Incredible. Yeah, another per- she still has yet to miss the first round question in this tournament. Um, and then in the big Iron Man match, uh, kind of how we were expecting, I'd say, it was, although it was, a, it was a great match to watch. It was. Um, you know, I will, I will it, give... It went the way I was expecting with above the line, winning pretty comfortably. I mean, they had a pretty comfortable advantage throughout the match over the Patriots. Yeah, they, they took a five to six point lead about 20 to 25 questions in to the Iron Man match. And, and they never really surrendered. Yeah, they never really looked vulnerable, and that didn't surprise me. I honestly thought it would get worse. I mean, they ended up winning by like nine points, but I thought it was going to be bad even before the speed round. And we yeah. knew, we knew once it got to the speed round, like the Patriots were going to need like a five to ten point lead to hold them off in the speed round. Right. Uh, so, but I, I will uh, get sorry. One last thing, I will give credit to JTE though. Like he got like three or four points in the speed round. Like good on him. Yeah, yeah, no, JTE I thought played really well, and Snyder again. I think he kind of threw in the towel. Actually, someone pointed out it was really funny that. One time point at the end of the match, like right at the end of the match when it was clear that the Patriots were going to lose, Snyder tried to buzz in and just say your mom as a joke answer, and McQueenie still beat him to the buzzer <laughs> with the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah, um, Snyder threw in the towel. He was like walking away even before the match was over. Like, yeah. He was even getting up and walking out before the match was over, which I get. I just like, he's kind of a sore loser, which I mean, kind of came yeah, up. It, ca- it came up in his number one contender match with Bimiani, which I don't want to dwell on, but like, I was a huge fan of Snyder before. That match, and I really lost a lot of respect for him, almost throwing the match after he he spun. Oh, was it eighties? Seventies or seven? Yeah, seven. No, he's good at eighties. Um, yeah, he spun seventies. Well, I didn't even understand it because he was getting like some classics questions right in the Ironman match. I was like, how are you gonna be like you're that bad at seventies? Like you could actually get some of these, but well, the classics yeah. like he he addressed that though. Like the classics questions are like the classics movie that he's familiar with are like from the fifties and before. So yeah. I'll give him credit. I'll get. I'll give him that. But like at the same time, it was it was kind of disgraceful to see him just totally give the match to Bibiani with a KO. Like they didn't even get to the third round, um, yeah. which was really disappointing. I, I felt like he was doing it on purpose. Um, in terms, of, no, I mean, I know, I know he was like, I know he was quitting on purpose, but it almost felt like he was at the point where he just didn't even care anymore, and that he just want like he could have gone to multiple choice and gotten to the third round, like not known the answer, gotten to the third round yeah. and like had a chance. Or at least been able to answer questions, but he just didn't care enough to do it, which was kind of disappointing. Yeah, speaking of uh, disgraceful, uh, we have to talk about the other match at the collision, which is, oh. I think, pretty safe to say it's the biggest uh, oh, upset yeah. in down history. I don't know what you're, Scott, I don't know what you're talking about disgraceful, man. This match, this match was lit. I don't know what you're and, talking about. I was so Andrew hyped. Guy, um, defeated the GOAT, Dan Merle, on his return to the Schmodown. Um, by a score of sixteen to fourteen, um, Mo- I, I don't care. Like th- this, okay. So at the end, of, at the what is it when they do the award show at the end of the year? 
Yeah. Like, like moment of the year is going is going to come down to between Dan Merle's reveal at the live event, and then like, and we still have half the year to go to. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. There'll be other contenders too, but like the top two right now are like Merle's reveal at the live event, and yeah. also like Guy's reaction to beating Dan Merle. He's like standing on the set, like yeah. on top of stuff, and it, I just I loved it, man. I'm not gonna lie, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I appreciated, like, you know, obviously the drama of it and what it did for the storyline, but I was, you know, I was very heavily rooting for Merle in this match, uh-huh. uh, and I still I, I still didn't believe that he was going to lose until, you know, he missed that final question. Um, and Yeah, there was I mean, totally a got, chance that guy would have just bombed the, the third yeah, round. Because we, he hasn't really showed off great trivia ability in the past, but... He certainly did in this match. I mean, he played a great match. And, like, that last question, too, that Merle missed, like, he knew the answer. And I never, I have never heard of that movie that, that they, they were asking about in the question. The Tom Hardy movie. Yeah, I, I, I mean, never, it was called, like, Child 44 or something. Like, I've yeah, never heard of that. Yeah, it's called Child 44. I think that, I think that, in the first round at least, I thought the movies were pretty up his alley. Like, I, like, I think he got lucky with, like, the round... Of his trivia knowledge, I don't think he's totally without trivia knowledge. I never thought that. Yeah. I don't think his range. He's very concentrated. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think his range is huge, and so I think he got he came off well in the first round, getting questions that were like mostly within his wheelhouse. Like if they were in a category that he wasn't super familiar with, they were in a range like a sub range within the category that like made sense that he was familiar with. Mm-hmm. And then the second round, he got comedy. Like he got Spinner's Choice in the second round, right? Or did he get night? Uh, or did he just no. get comedies? No, he just hit comedies. That's right. Um, yeah. And like that's right up his alley. Like that, like that's his strength. And like I comedies mean, is a strength the, of his. The big thing was too that Merle took a risk on some of his second uh, second round questions, and Guy ended up getting two two point steals. Uh, yeah. So I mean, Merle did 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 hit opponent's choice on his respin, which definitely helped Guy. So I think Guy was pretty cunning. And I mean, like if you don't if you know that something's not a Particular, I mean, like, is Dan Merle weak at anything? Probably not. That, that's what I was going to say. Like, I, I was sitting there thinking, like, I don't think Dan Merle was is really weak in any of these categories. But he did end up showing a weakness in romantic comedies, I think, was what he picked, right? It's, a, it's actually just romance. It wasn't romantic romance, comedy. Romance, yeah. um, which makes sense, like, that, like, for me, like, okay, I can see Guy being pretty good at this category, to be honest. It seems like movies that are, like, up his alley. And... Okay, well, like, okay, Dan Merle's probably not bad at anything, but he's probably not, like, he's probably not great. Like, romance is probably not his genre, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I thought it was really... Even though, even though he is, he's in a romance with another Schmodown contestant. <laughs> nice, nice cut there, that was good. Um, but no, that, that being said, I just think that, like, Andrew Guy maybe got a little bit lucky with the questions he got. He got lucky with the wheel, which you have to get, like, to win Schmodown matches, you generally have to get lucky with the wheel, um, at least to some degree. And yeah. I think that he was really smart. Like, the way he played the game, he was really smart. And he and, and I really appreciate how, like, respectful everyone was of him after the match in terms of uh, the, the five horsemen. Yeah, and I mean, on that, along the same lines, like, I don't think this is by any means, like, the end of Merle or this, like, indicates anything about, you know, Merle's comeback. Like, I think that he's still one of the top players in this league. I mean... He, he had a very good first round. I think he scored six points in the first round. Um, you know, if the second round goes another way, I think he, if he does, maybe if he doesn't take some risks, if he goes down to multiple choice on some of the questions, uh-huh. I think maybe he could have won this match. 
but you know, I think he will he will certainly get back to winning ways in the very near future. And something we have coming up in the near future, as we learned at the end of the collision, is anarchy, which is what Mike Kalinowski, the de facto commissioner, uh, is now calling the team Ultimate Schmodown Tournament. And the reason that he's calling it that is because uh, this is going to be Battle Bowl style. If you're familiar with wrestling, that's what it's called in Battle Bowl, where all of the teams, all of the tag teams that we know and love are split up. All the names are thrown into a hat, and uh, the teams, new teams are drawn out at random. And so there's going to be 16 names, um, and new teams are going to be drawn out at random, and they're going to compete in the Ultimate Schmodown team tournament. Um I don't know about you, but I am incredibly excited for this. Like the possibilities of like, you know, extremely entertaining pairings are seemingly endless if you just think about it. I'm just I'm just really hoping for a Rachel Cushing and Ben Bateman pairing, personally. Or a Rachel Cushing Tom Dagnino pairing. Oh god, that would also be great. Because Tom Dagnino, we saw him opening the envelope, the anarchy envelope. So that makes me think he is going to be in the tournament. No, I think that's just a corruption envelope. It's the same one that like that uh, that Thad and um, Ken and Donica all got. So you don't think that that means like Ken and Donica are also going to be in the tournament? Well, I think they'll probably. Well, I don't. No, I okay. Dance like no, I don't think that means they're going to be in the tournament. I okay. think I think that that was setting up the other plot, like the other main plot point that we haven't talked about yet, which was the breakup of the Lions Den. I think, breaking up. Yeah, yeah I think because I think I think that was just setting that up. I, although it is a question though, like what's up with Jay? Because Jay is the one person who got a corruption envelope that hasn't. We didn't really get any payout for that plot line. So we'll see. I mean, it could be a manager's thing as well, but that doesn't really explain why Donica's getting one. Uh, well, yeah, that's true because Ken's now a manager. Um, yeah, he, he's now managing Donica and Snyder. At least that's what it seems like. Um, and JTE, however, stayed with Dagnino. Well, do we know that Donica went with Ken? I think I think he did. Uh, I think I saw something about that. I, I don't know if it was clear from the video, but I think maybe on Facebook or something I saw that Donica was was with Ken. But so is, so yeah yeah, yeah no, that's true. I think that that's, um, that feels right um, in terms of what you're talking about. Who that faction consists of right now? It'll be interesting to see who they pick up. To be honest, because they're they're not going to stay there. They're gonna they're gonna add more people surely. Um, yeah, I mean, at least Dagnino and JT are definitely going to have to. Um, oh, yeah, I, I also meant the Knights of Kin, though. I, I also meant that they, yeah. they'll have to add a few people as well. So I'm excited to see what that has in store, and I'm also excited to see what the uh, Viper Squad has in store with Jay also being a part of the corruption envelopes and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Viper Squad, they didn't they didn't turn up really in that. Um, no, Stacy was very disappointing in the number one. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on with Stacy, but I think she needs to practice more. But um, but yeah, so the winner of that um, Ultimate Showdown Team Tournament is going to get a title shot. However, that title shot will not be against Above the Line, and that is because Sam Levine uh, announced somewhat shockingly on Tuesday that he is retiring from the movie tribute showdown yeah. and it vaca- vacating the singles and team belts immediately with the consent of his partner, Drew McQueenie. Yep. Um, so that means that the singles belt is now up for grabs, and the way that that's going to go down is we have Viviani, who beat Snyder and has earned a title shot, so Viviani's already in that title match, and he will face the winner of Andrejko and Irwin, which is the other number one contender match that we have coming up soon. 
Yeah, I, um, I kind of figured that's what his announcement was going to be, which is, which is, it was really disappointing to me. I think I think that it's like super. I mean, I get what he's saying. I mean, his argument is that like he has literally nothing else to accomplish in yeah. the showdown. I actually don't agree. I think that it, it, maybe it's his way of of you know as he as he put it, bowing out while you're actually on top and not after you lose yeah. a match. And I get that. That being said, he could hold the belts for longer than the Patriots. Like, there are other things he could accomplish yeah. in the Schmodown. More records he could set. I honestly thought the only other alternative that I thought was going to be that it could have been this announcement was that, like, some sort of uh, challenge for, like, the commissioner spot. Like, I thought he might try, like, try to become yeah, commissioner. Well, I, I, I think he, that's still on the table because he said that he is going to, you know, be working behind the scenes and everything. So, I mean, I could definitely see him perhaps usurping the commissioner throne at some point in the future. Yeah, I just thought that he might be like calling out Thad or, or whatever that yeah. contractual structure is to be the yeah. commissioner or Kalinowski or whatever the hell is going on with that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm gonna, not gonna lie, I'm pretty. Dis- I mean, I know we're still gonna see him around. He he made that very clear. Uh, but he'll probably show up in like the free for all and stuff in the future. But sure, I'm I, I'm just really disappointed that he's bowing yeah. out because I I think that they're the league, the league deserves more of Sam Levine, and I think that he's not unbeatable. In fact, I mean, he was what three and he was three and four when he before he started his run. Um, and all of his matches have been very. I mean, his, both of his singles matches were extremely close. I mean, Clark Wolf match went to multiple rounds of sudden death. Like the Rachel match could have easily been different if not for the speed round. Um, yep. So yeah, I I don't think he's invincible either. I mean, we obviously yeah, that's what people used to say about Dan Merle too, and we obviously saw that's not true anymore. So. Yeah. So, like, yeah, like I said, I think that there was a lot of potential left with Sam Levine in the sh- like competing, physically competing in the showdown. Although I know he still will be around, uh, and so I'm a little disappointed on that. I think that I get, I again, I get what he's saying about wanting to go out truly on top, but I am a little disappointed in him. I, I agree. I mean, I think he's a great personality to have around in the showdown, and it's nice having a champion who you can can root for. Um, but. As far as how the team division will go from here, um, you know, it, it, it hasn't really been announced yet, but it looks like that the winner of the, what I'm guessing is that the winner of the team tournament will play the winner of World's Finest at Shire Wolves, which is the number one contender team match that actually I think is coming up next week. It's the Patreon match for this month. Um, yeah, big Patreon match this month. Yeah. Um, so I guess that would mean this is the one point I'm confused on is, you know, whoever loses this match, does that mean they're not going to be in the anarchy? I'm, I'm guessing that it does mean they won't be in anarchy. Um, you mean the, win- so like the winner of the match won't be in anarchy? Well, the winner certainly won't, but the loser might not either because, you know, they had a title shot and lost. So, well, like, we might not see... But they're going to be split if, up if, in anarchy, though. Yeah, I know, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like Based on based on the past, like we, I could see them saying, "Well, you need to work your way up before you can get yeah. back to where you're in a position to get That's a number fair. one contender spot again." That, yeah, um, I see what you're saying. I think that the loser will be in anarchy. That being said, like, can World's Finest really touch the Shire Wolves? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's definitely going to be difficult. But I mean, I, I doubted World's Finest against Team Trek as as well, and they they've shown what they can do so far. I mean, I think Eric Zipper has shown that he's a really consistent player uh, across the teams and inter and even singles with his free-for-all performance. That's true. Um, That's true. He's a very good player. Um, so you never know. You know, if the wheel goes another way, I mean, Andrew Guy just beat Dan Merle. So I, 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 want, I want Zipper and Sean Gerber to be teamed together. 
That could be interesting. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see who are the 16 people that will be in the tournament. Because, you know, not everyone is going to be able to be in it. Um, yep. So... I mean, also, it's also true that, like, like, the team's division, as it currently stands, is not that deep. So, like, which is why I think it makes sense to do this. Yeah. So, I think that this, I think this, like you said, it makes sense, and it could be, and it will be really interesting. Yeah, okay. Well, I think that about covers what's new in the showdown. Um, Before we conclude today, uh, let's touch on some news, and, you know, the main news, which we have, news items which we have, um, over the past couple of weeks is what's been coming out of San Diego Comic-Con this weekend. Um, huge event every year, obviously. And mainly what we've been getting is footage and trailers. Um, you know, the DC Universe has put out uh, some new stuff. We, we've seen some footage for Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. Pe- people, um, people to, to this point, just to give a little context, people had been, people as in people like me who follow comic movies, uh, pretty closely in that whole comic book universe, uh, DC had been, has been noticeably very absent from uh, like display since ju- since Justice League came out, they've kept very quiet about uh, Aquaman. Like people are really surprised it's taken this long to get a trailer for it. Um, and then they also delivered a Shazam trailer. And then earlier this week as well, they delivered a, a trailer for a new TV series on the CW that's coming that's coming out. Not this. I don't know if it's this year or next year. Is it uh, gonna be part of the Arrowverse? Yeah, no, it's part of the Arrowverse for sure. Um, it's called, it's like, it's just called Titans, so it's like the Teen Titans, but a uh, live action okay. version. Um, I'm at a, so so yeah, so they, they've been delivering a lot of content. You got the footage of Wonder Woman 1984, which is what you mentioned as well. Sorry, I'm, I'm cutting you out a little bit here, but I just want to no, give, give some context here for a second around this. Uh, so I'm really excited about, yeah, I'm really excited about Wonder Woman 1984. I mean, of course, I haven't seen the footage, because that was behind closed doors, right? I, can I, I think guess? so. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if there was a trailer that they released or not, but yeah. Well, uh, maybe I'll double check it, but I didn't. I didn't see the actual. If yeah, there was some so footage that was released, I didn't see it. Um, but I think that I'm excited about that. But honestly, like I, I will be frank when I say that I'm a bigger DC universe, not not the DC EU, but I'm a big a bigger DC comics fan than I am a Marvel comics fan in yeah. terms of the characters that DC owns. Versus the one that Marvel's own and, and what you can do with those characters. And at this point, uh, Scott, I can't even get excited about anything um, that they do. Like, I saw, I don't know if you watched the Aquaman or Shazam trailers. Um, I watched the Aquaman trailer and I actually didn't think it looked that bad. Like, I was surprised it looked better than I was expecting. Yeah, and okay, well, yes, that's, well, I don't know what you were expecting. I was expecting nothing at all. I was all. expecting really corny and bad. Okay, yeah, so like, it is definitely. Fine, but that being said, like I don't know how much you watch like tr- like movie trailers from even like a few years ago, but like Batman versus Superman's trailers were amazing, and, oh, I, and yeah. I know that That's like true. I do remember that. Like I know that like I I still am a defender of that. Like, I think that movie is good, not great, but still good, not terrible. Um, but that being said, like Justice League trailers were like decent. Wonder Woman's trailers were good. Like, like the like the quality of the trailers from Warner Brothers just is like no indication for me whatsoever how yeah. good the movie is. And like, I just can't get excited about Aquaman. I can't get excited about Shazam. Uh, I can get excited about Wonder Woman because I trust Patty Jenkins and I trust Gal Gadot. But I I need DC to like actually hit a home run at some point besides Wonder Woman and not disappoint me anymore because they have the characters and the IP 
that if they did if they did a good job if they had Kevin Feige that they could really do something incredible with like they have Batman he's like like Batman is the comic book superhero of all time like I know people might disagree with me about like maybe yeah. even like Spider Man or Superman but like Batman is the has to be the most famous most popular superhero in my book of all time again I think you can make an argument for Spider Man but like and and they just <laughs> like as I actually think Ben Affleck is a good Batman, but like they just have not done it justice. Like the whole Batman like stand standalone movie is a total mess right now. Like they just have no direction, and it's so disappointing to me. And I mean, like I'm still gonna see Aquaman. I'm still gonna see Shazam, um, if for no re- other reason than for the podcast. But like I mean, I'd still like let's be clear, I would still see it anyway. But like I just can't get my hopes up anymore after. The last, like, Justice League was disappointing to me. It was arguably, like, critically, critical consensus-wise, it was better, technically, than Batman vs. Superman. Although, personally, I was less willing to forgive the same sins that I saw in Justice League that I had, I had seen in Batman vs. Superman. And, um, you know, with Wonder Woman being the exception, like, Suicide Squad was a total disaster. Um, and so I'm, I'm hesitant to say that Aquaman will be any better. But we'll see. Yeah, uh... I think you've, you've said it pretty well. I mean, I haven't even seen a lot of the DCE movies because of how critically panned they have been, and I hate Zack Snyder, so I don't really think that I would enjoy them. Well, I mean, um, I mean, Zack Snyder's like been surgically removed from DC, I think. So yeah, so so that's what I was gonna, what I was leading towards. I am hopeful with Wonder Woman and with the Aquaman yeah. tra- trailer not looking terrible, uh, um, especially with. I, ja- I mean, like with James Wan. At, sorry, one last thing here with, ja- right, James, with James Wan, Wan is. is I was trying to remember. Yeah, with James Wan directing Aquaman, like, I'm expecting, well, like, well, par for the DC Universe, or DCEU, like, the movie's gonna be gritty and dark, because that's all that James Wan knows how to do, um, but that... The trailer did look like it had uh, some humor in it, though, which I appreciated. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, all the jokes in the movie were in the trailer. Like, I'm just saying, like, that's what they do with, that's what they do with, that's what they do with, with Wonder Woman and Justice League. And Batman vs Superman, like they just put all the jokes into the trailer, yeah. Um, which is like fine if you do that. It just like misrepresents the movie. Um, yeah. But anyway, like yeah, with James Wan, like I, I have hope. I have a little bit of hope because he's a good director. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, so something else that came out of Comic Con that I was um, excited to see was some new footage, or excited to hear about was. Uh, some new footage for the Halloween movie, which we are getting later this year, uh, directed by David Gordon Green. It is, like, allegedly the last Halloween movie now. I feel like they've been promising that for years. Uh, but it, I think it, it has the potential to be really interesting and, like, maybe a little bit more psychological than some of the other Halloween movies which we've seen. So I'm encouraged uh, by by what I've seen in the trailer and stuff there. So Yeah, yeah and, and um, this has, like, the original cast, right? This is picking up from... Yeah, so yeah, so Jamie Lee Curtis is starring. Um, it's kind of like I set up like Blade Runner twenty forty nine was with like, it's like in real time the amount of time that's passed. Yeah, yeah, I think that is how it's going to be. But uh, as far as I know, nobody else from the original cast. I think Judy Greer is going to play um, Laurie's daughter, play Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter. Okay. Um, but I don't think like Malcolm McDowell or anybody like that, or, or uh, Donald Pleasance are returning. Um, but yeah, so yeah. I mean, again, I think I. I I'm optimistic. Um, and outside of Comic-Con, we've had a couple of other big news items. The big one, of course, being that James Gunn has been fired from Guardians of the Galaxy um, after some 
they were racist, were they? I still haven't even seen the tweets, actually. But um, no, they so, a- they actually weren't. So I looked them up because I was like, I don't know, <laughs> masochistic enough to decide, like, oh, I yeah, actually yeah. want to know what James Gunn has said. That yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not. So basically, I'm not going to repeat the tweets on the podcast because they are they are absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. But basically, he was he was making. I mean, he, so to give context, James Gunn like is a comedian. He yeah. is very like. People don't, I mean, like, you don't really get that from, I mean, like, there is humor in Guardians of the Galaxy, but, like, you don't get that James Gunn is a comedian, necessarily, from, from Guardians of the Galaxy, but he is, and he, uh, my understanding from doing a little bit more research on this is, like, he also leans pretty heavily into black humor, so he had some black humor jokes on his Twitter account that were about, uh, rape and pedophilia, which, Mm, neither, neither of which are good topics to have on your Twitter account, um, and these were dug up. I don't know how much you dug into this story, but like these were dug up by some, uh, some a really right wing blogger or something, right? Yeah, right, right wing blog, some pro Trump right wing bloggers after he had gone in on Ben Shapiro, basically, uh, oh. on Twitter. So uh, so much awful on both sides of the, of this debate. There's literally nothing good about this story. There's no one redeemable in this whole thing. Yeah, so he and Ben Shapiro got into a nice little Twitter fight, um, and some conservative right-wing bloggers went uh, went and dug deep uh, 11 years ago, I believe. I think it was like 2006 or 2007 when these tweets were from, um, and found these tweets and made them public, and Disney promptly fired him, which, I mean, you can't blame him for that. No, you certainly cannot. Um, and, yeah, I think that's about all there is to say on that. Um, and so our final news item today is, I don't know if you've seen anything about this, but this has got to be one of the true, truly one of the most bizarre projects, um, which is, which I've seen upcoming. And I, I don't know when the, when the projected release date for this thing is, but um, it is a film adaptation of the longest-running musical in Broadway history, Cats, um, from Andrew Lloyd Webber. Tom Hooper is directing. He, of course, is the director of The King's Speech, The Danish Girl, Les Mis. Um, you know, so he's, he's, a, he's a notable director. But, you know, Cats is obviously... I, people, it divides opinions. Um, you know, there, there are some people who think it's absolutely terrible. Uh, it doesn't seem like the most natural musical to bring to the big screen, um, especially when you consider the cast that he has assembled so far. Um, I'm just going to read out the four actors that have been cast in this movie and just just let you know their names do the rest but so we have Ian McKellen James Corden Taylor Swift and Jennifer Hudson what a crew that's the cast for cats what a crew yeah um so I don't know it's I don't know if I'll even be seeing this movie at all um I might have to for T-Swift but when it comes to film, she doesn't exactly have the best track record between Valentine's Day and The Giver. Um, yeah. So we will see. It's just it's the whole thing just seems very bizarre. Um, but yeah, yeah. That, I think I so I, there are a couple other things that I want to quickly talk about. Yeah, sure. um, that I didn't have the time to prep before the show, but I do want to mention first. I think that this is one that you'll find particularly relevant. Uh, I believe that Lin Manuel Miranda is set to direct a, a movie musical produced by Ron Howard. Um, I did see and, that. Yeah, so he's directing uh, an adaptation of I forget who who wrote Rent the musical. I forget Jonathan Larson. Yeah, so it's it's about his life. Um, it's a musical about Jonathan Larson's life, and he the the story being, of course, that he tragically died 
like the day yeah. before Rent debuted. Yeah. Or something like that. Um, yeah, so there's a – Lin-Manuel Miranda will be getting his, uh, I guess, movie de- – like directorial musical debut uh, with that. Which I think is going to be great because, first of all, Rent is a great musical and like he has cited it as one of the major – inspirations for Hamilton um, and so we've seen what Lin-Manuel Miranda can do with material when he's very inspired by it so I think that this could be a really really something really good yeah so uh, I know a lot of conversation had been about whether Lin-Manuel Miranda would be given one of the live action Disney movies to do because he's worked on a couple of them I know he worked on The Little Mermaid and yeah, Moana he was a and Moana he, he did some of the music yeah. for Moana that's right I think he was even a voice in the movie maybe, yeah. oh that's yeah totally possible and he is in uh, isn't isn't he in Mary Pop? Isn't he acting in Mary Poppins Returns? Isn't I believe that's the- right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's done a lot of work with with Disney, and so I mean that this doesn't mean that he won't eventually direct a Disney live action movie. It just means that he's gonna, you know, cut his teeth first on something else, which probably, which probably feels about right to be honest. Yeah. Um, I know that I don't know if you've been following this at all, but Scarlett Johansson was getting a lot of uh, pu- yeah, pu- pushback, we'll say, too. for being cast in a trans role in Rub and Tug. Um, and, and she, she, dropped, out, she yeah. dropped out of that role, which was probably the smart decision on her part. And uh, I don't know why. I, I really don't understand why casting, like casting managers and casting directors, don't cast people who are authentic to the roles. Like, like just to go back to our conversation about uh, eighth grade. Just, I mean, literally just minutes ago, we were talking about this. We talked about how brilliant it was to cast someone who is in, of an eighth grade age. So I, I actually looked it up that she was fourteen when this movie was being filmed. Yeah. So she's like literally the age of an eighth grader. Who, when she was going, well, like when she uh, tried tried for the role, trial for the role, like Bo Burnham talked about, I chose her because she was authentic to the role. Like she was a shy person trying to be confident, and that's the character I wanted in the film. To is what is what you said, and I believe that, and like that is casting that makes sense. And so when you have a movie that needs to cast a trans person, like why on earth would you use a cisgendered person in the role? Like there are trans actors out there. Like I don't understand. Like. By casting Jake Gyllenhaal as the Prince of Persia, we may never know. Yeah, well, <laughs> get me riled up. Get me riled up. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. so I don't think we need to say unless you want to add anything to that. I, I think that that probably covers that topic. Nah. Yeah, and then a couple other things really quick here. I know there's a Downton Abbey movie with the original cast in the works. That's exciting for me. I really okay. like. I really liked the first few seasons of Downton Abbey, and I'm really excited that. Uh, is it? I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but Matthew's character. So, is that Dan Stevens? Dan, yeah, Dan Stevens is going to be returning. I thought like he was one of the best parts of that show, and when he left, uh, it mm. lost a lot of its uh, stardust for me. We might see Lily James as well. She had a you know a big part on Downton Abbey. No, as well. no, she did. I expect that she would be in it. Um, I could yeah. be wrong, but I'd expect that. And then last thing for me that I have here is that Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie oh, uh, yes. gets a title and a release date as well, and uh, it's it's coming out. Uh, have you seen this at all, or or is yeah, this I've, news I've to read you? A little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Walking Phoenix Joker movie, uh, aptly just called uh, Joker, is is mm. going to be coming out. Um, I believe. Uh, let me double check this, but I believe it's coming out uh, October fourth next year. Yep, twenty nineteen. So we don't have too I'm far. That, that we lo- no. Go ahead. Yep. I love Joaquin Phoenix. I feel like he's going to go super method for this role, too. So I think this could be really good. Yeah, th- I mean, this just speaks to the weird stuff happening with the DCEU. Because you already have Jared Leto, who's the Joker. So people aren't really sure what the, like what this is going to yeah. be. 
Because, um, like, people, they've also said that Jared Leto has not been, like, fired from his role as the Joker. So, very strange. Not 100% sure what's going on there. But this, I mean, well, I mean, I love, I know you love Joaquin Phoenix. I love Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, the fact that we, this movie was thought to be pretty far out, and the fact that this is coming out, you know, in a little bit over a year, that's exciting. Yeah, without a doubt. Cool. That's all I got. All right. Well, I think that should just about do it then um, for this episode of Something Like It. Scott, um, as always, thank you for taking the time to listen. If you like the show, remember that you can support us on Patreon and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Scott, where can we find you on Twitter? I am at SShelton2013. I'm still don't tweet as much as you do, <laughs> but uh, I, I try to tweet a little bit more than I have in the past for the, for the pod. I, I always try to also retweet our podcast's Twitter feed. When relevant? Yep. So, um, catch me there, at S. Shelton 2013. And I'm at Dent, but like Scott uh, said, don't forget to follow our official Some Like It Scott account, which is at Media Plug Pods. I just tweeted out a great video today from Screen Junkies um, that will catch you up on all of the Mission Impossible movies. Yep. Um, that is definitely worth watching, and it's definitely worth watching for us as well, because in a couple weeks we're going to be back with Mission Impossible Fallout, and another movie which I'm also extremely excited for, Searching. Um, and so I, I'm really looking forward to discussing both of those movies. Um, but until then, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Okay.